0: Introduction to the Legend of the Five Rings Role Playing Core Rulebook, read by Jeannie Calvar. The 27th day of the month of Tagashi, 1118, in a private garden of the esteemed Palaces of the Crane. Doji Hataru was no actress, but she was the one dissembling now. "'Since the beginning of time, Lord Moon has chased Lady Sun about the world,' said Lady Kachiko as she swept her fan in an arc overhead. "'One day he caught her, and as her light faded, the curtain fell on the age of the ancient races.' Kachiko closed her fan slowly in a false eclipse. "'Over the course of countless seasons,' Lady Sun gave birth to nine children, Hida, Doji, Tagashi, Akodo, Shiba, Bayushi, Fuleng, and Hante. Hataru kept her face still, and hands politely folded over her lap at the mention of the Ninth Kami, the founder of the Imperial House. Whatever it was the Scorpion clan were plotting concerning the Emperor, it would surely not benefit her clan, the Crane. Lord Moon knew that any children whose veins carried both elements of sun and moon would grow to be greater than he, and so, despite the protests of Lady Sun, he swallowed the children one by one. "'You do not deserve to wield Shukujo. The clan cannot afford a weak champion. You must prove yourself a worthy heir first. The Lord Satsume may have been far away from Doji Palace, her father's voice filled her head as if he stood by Hataru's side. "'I will prove myself, father!' Discerning the nature of the scorpion's scheme from Kachiko, one of the most infamous manipulators of the scorpion clan, would be nigh impossible. But Hataru had no other choice but to try, even if it meant betraying Kachiko's trust. "'Shall I continue?' came the scorpion's velvet voice." From her seat on the veranda, Ataru locked eyes with Kachiko through the delicate black silk of her mask. The woman's robes were a midnight crimson shadow cast against the whiteness of the gravel courtyard garden. The frost-tipped pines swayed softly in the wintry breeze, and the gray clouds overhead threatened snow. I'm sorry that my performance is so lackluster that your attention should drift," Kachiko pouted. On the contrary, Ataru wanted to say. You're performing too well, sending my thoughts spiraling away from myself. Is it on purpose? Am I just another fool for her to play off of? No, I'm the one who's going to use her now. Not at all. Hataro inclined her head in respect. Your narration is flawless. There are few actors who would even attempt to recite The Children of Sun and Moon, but the entire court is looking forward to your performance of it in the coming weeks. Kachiko put on a show of demurring. I am sure that is not true. It is for that very reason that I thought you might be able to give me your opinion, O oh poet of the crane. It was a flimsy excuse for them to meet in private, and they both knew it. But it was only away from the eyes and ears of the court that they could forsake appearances and pretend they were not bitter enemies for a time. Please, continue, Hataru offered. Tell me of how Lady Sun poisoned her husband with sake to secret away her youngest from the fate of his siblings. She grinned. Poison is so strong a word, Kachiko protested. So you say, Hataru looked mock askance at Kachiko. Their levity belied Kachiko's near-fatal brushes with poison. By luck? Or was it fate? Hataru had intercepted and dispatched one would-be assassin before it was too late. Kachiko continued the tale of how Lady Sun wept to see her children devoured so, and her tears fell to earth as crystal and jade. She trained Hante in the martial arts so that one day he could confront his jealous father. When Hante and Lord Moon finally did battle, it shook the very heavens. At last, Hante sliced open his father's belly, and the rest of his siblings tumbled out. They fell from the sky to Sapun Hill, the site of the future imperial capital save for one. Lord Moon reached out at the last moment and grasped Fulang. Hante swung his sword one last time and severed his father's very arm. Fulang tried to grab a hold of Hante, and they both fell. Plummeting downward, Fulang plunged through the earth to Jikoku itself, where he was lost. The blood from Lord Moon's wound fell to the ground, where it solidified into obsidian. In some places— the blood mixed with Lady Sun's tears, and from that mingling came the first men and women. The other kami wept for their brother, but they had other concerns. No longer immortal, they shared the mortal realm with human beings. The kami resolved to teach and guide these humans, and they held a great tournament to see who would lead those who lived in this land they dubbed Brokugon. Lady Shinjo outpaced Lord Hida, but she was outwitted by Lord Bayushi. Lord Shiba saw through his twin Bayushi's trickery, but was overcome by Lady Doji's grace. Lord Okoto defeated Lady Doji, and when he turned to fight Hante, he nearly lost himself in his battle fury. Hante turned Okoto's rage against him and emerged victorious. Meanwhile, Lord Tagashi looked on from the sidelines, having foreseen the outcome. After his coronation as emperor, Hante charged each of his siblings with a different task. Hida would guard against the growing darkness beyond the southernmost lands. Doji would foster the arts and keep the peace between them all. To defend Rokugon, Akoto would lead great armies. Shiba would tend to the land's spirits and the empire's soul. Upon Bayushi, the emperor placed a heavy burden to do what Hante could not dirty his hands with. Always restless, Shinjo would venture beyond the empire's borders to scout for any threats yet to come. Mysteriously, Tagashi retreated to the mountains, where he would watch over the empire from afar. But not long after the kami had begun to order the world and form clans with their earliest followers, Fu Leng emerged from his subterranean lair. The corruption of Jikoku had spread from the hole in the earth to the surrounding lands, and demons followed in his shadow. Kachiko's face hardened into hatred, tinged with sadness. Why did you not invite me to compete in your great tournament? Fulang asked Hante. Fury flashed like lightning in her eyes, driving away any hint of sorrow. I could have easily beaten any of you! The Kami looked upon their fallen brother and saw that he had been twisted with jealousy and desire. "'We did not know of your fate. We thought you lost poor brother. But now, now we see that you truly are,' declared Hante. Kachiko slid into a new role, her back straightening with imperious authority. "'You are marked by hell, by Jikoku, and will only lead these human beings to their doom.' lies! You did not even think to search for me when I fell. You are the one unfit to rule over these mortals, you who would not even aid your own kin. I challenge your claim. Kachiko allowed Hante's character a glimpse of sadness before stealing his resolve. Hante considered this and accepted the duel. I shall name Tagashi as my champion." Tagashi stepped forward, pain etched across the face that was, at all other times, inscrutable. Pick a weapon, brother, Lang offered. Now you will learn what I know about destiny. Togashi replied, I choose as my weapon all that lives in Rokugan. So be it, Lang declared, I shall bring the armies of hell to bear against your foolish followers, and they shall see which of us is stronger, which of us deserves to rule. And thus began the war against Fulang. The war when the ancestral sword of the crane, Shukujo, was nearly lost. Hataru's ancestor, Doji Konoshiko, had been one of the seven mortal thunders who were finally able to defeat Fulang with the guidance of Shinsei, the little teacher. Konishiko had fought alongside the actress, Shoshoro, Kachiko's forebear, as well as the Shigenja, Isawa, the berserker, Matsu, the duelist, Miramoto, the battle maiden, Utaku, and the warrior, Hita Atarashi. One thousand years passed. One day it would fall to Hataru to wield Shukujo. If only she could prove herself to her father. At last the snow began to fall. Hataru gathered her paper umbrella and rose from her seat. Kachiko, she began, moving closer and unfurling her umbrella to protect them both from the cold wind. Do you believe the prophecies of the Order of the Seven Thunders, that after a thousand years— the cycle will repeat and the thunders will return. Kachiko stood very still, waiting for the words that hung unspoken in the air. Her face softened. Because I would fight by your side, Hatari whispered. The wind gusted, sending a chill up her spine. Kachiko placed a hand on the handle to help steady the umbrella and looked up at her. It was the first time Hatara could remember that she had seen the unshakable woman look truly vulnerable. Hataru could not pretend to be heartless, could not scheme as the scorpion did, and she would not betray Kachiko. I know I cannot ask this of you, who would dare ask her to betray her clan, but I must, and in so doing, place my honor in her hands. But would you help me now?
1: Her Father's Daughter, by D.G. Laroute. Somewhere along the Emperor's Road, Daidoji Narishma, peered into the gloomy undergrowth along the road as the Crane Clan caravan he was escorting plodded along past him. Above the clomping hooves of draft oxen and the rumbling and squeaking of wagons piled high with bags of rice, he struggled to discern what he had seen or heard. Narishma flung himself aside, the arrow that would have slammed into his face thumping instead into a bale of rice. Recovering, he raised his triple-headed spear and shouted, Ambush! Be ready! Rough men in shabby peasant's garb erupted from the undergrowth. Narishma found himself suddenly locked in melee with two, no, three of them, who slashed at him with peasant weapons. Frantically, he knocked aside their blows and struck back. A whirl of dust, sweat, steel, and confusion. Silver flashed. As the long blade of a Naginata slashed one of the bandits, then another across the throat, Narishma gutted the third, then turned in time to see someone rush past him in a billow of dark cloak, hood held in place with a conical straw hat. Barely breaking stride, the cloaked figure, whom Narishma vaguely recognized as another of the caravan guards, struck down a bandit with another effortless sweep of the Naginata. A few paces, and another fell. Another back along the caravan, guards slashed and stabbed at their ambushers, holding their own, driving them back. Gripping his spear, Narishma turned and hurried after the cloaked figure toward the head of the caravan, determined not to leave his benefactor to fight alone. He caught up in time to find the hooded guard facing a lean man wielding the swords of a samurai, a katana in his right hand, and a wakazashi in his left. The man bore no mon or other heraldry on his drab kimono. He was a ronin then, and probably the leader of this bandit pack. Narishma rushed to join the cloaked figure, who was probably also a ronin. A mercenary hired to protect the caravan, but the naginata, dripping blood, swung to block his way. At the same time, a woman's voice shouted to the bandit leader. This caravan rightfully travels the emperor's road. How dare you assault it? The ronin raised his swords. These people and their families are starving. The rice in those wagons is better filling their bellies than the emperor's tax houses, so they do what they must. It is certainly not your place to decide such a thing. Nor is any excuse sufficient for the crimes you have committed here today. There is only one penalty, which is death. Death awaits us all," he replied, taking a stance. Narishma recognized as Niten, the dual-wielding sword style favored by the Dragon Clan. Nerishma again started forward, determined to help dispatch this dishonorable dog of a Ronin. And once more, the bloody Naginata moved to block him. This time, its wielder turned. The face looking back at him from under the hood shone like alabaster, striking beauty framed by snow-white hair. Narishima recognized it immediately and took an astounded step back. It was Doji Hotaru, champion of the Crane Clan and his lord and master. Narishima instinctively began to bow, but Hotaru shook her head. Maintain your stand, Samurai-san, and step back. I appreciate your desire to assist, but I shall deal with this myself. Uh, of course, Doji Ue. As you command. He straightened, still eager to stand with his champion, despite her command and his own stunned amazement. Clearly, she'd been with the caravan for some time now, concealing herself in traveler's garb. But why? And why would she deign to confront this Ronan cur in any case? A man so far beneath her in the celestial order, he might as well have been an actual dog. But it was not Nerishma's place to question. So, he stepped back. Hotaro turned back to the ronin and raised her naginata. The ronin bowed, and Hotaro returned the bow. A pause. Then the man launched himself at Hotaru like a leaping tongue of flame. Hotaru jumped aside, lashing out with a much longer naginata, forcing the ronin to pull his strikes short. But the man recovered in an instant, dashing inside the naginata's arc. Hotaru dodged the katana by a finger span, but the wakizashi opened a shallow gash on her arm. Narishma gasped and took an involuntary step. Maintain your stance, samurai-san. Narishma teetered on a knife edge of warring compulsions, assist his champion or obey her. Gritting his teeth, he obeyed. The ronin struck again and again, but Hotaru was as water, a flow of movement avoiding the blows. Still, Narishma began to despair at his champion's inability to seize the initiative, until abruptly she did, becoming as fire, a blur of furnace rage, but channeled by the subtlety of air. She'd been merely leading her opponent, Nurishma realized, provoking his most devastating attacks, learning his moves and his countermoves, and doing it all in a matter of seconds that had only felt like minutes. The Ronin fell back, desperately trying to fend off the whirling Naginata once he found an opening and lunched himself into it, but it was a feint, leaving him unbalanced and overextended. Hotaru slammed the Naginata into his shoulder, cleaving him to the opposite collarbone. The Ronin toppled back in a shower of blood, mouth gaping, gasping for air that would never reach his lungs. The Crane Clan champion didn't hesitate, swinging a blow that struck off the Ronin's head. Narishima waited for his champion to stand down from the confrontation. Instead, she simply stared down at the fallen opponent. Could there be a worse injury than her arm, one he hadn't seen? He started toward Hotaru, saying, Doji Ue, I remain at your service should you need... No, she said, flicking the blood from her naginata, then glancing at her injury. I have suffered worse, sparring with Toshimoku Sensei. She looked back at the caravan, then turned to Norishma. The remaining bandits are fleeing. Retrieve the ronin's blades, Daidoji-san. "'in case there is someone deserving of their return. "'Then let us return to our places in the caravan "'and wait for it to resume its way to Otasanuchi.' "'Nurishma bowed. "'Hi, Doji ue. "'It is not his place to question. "'Still, for the rest of the trip, Nurishima had to work very hard at pretending his clan champion "'wasn't walking only paces away.' Her sister's apartment in the Imperial Palace offered a breathtaking view. The gardens below, Hotarusa saw, were impeccably arranged for the season, the fuchsia glow of pink moss a brilliant contrast to the muted cream and pale purple of wisteria. The first roses were coming into bloom, yellow and crimson counterpoints. It rivaled the splendor of the gardens in the Chisei district of Orasanuchi, where the Crane Clan embassy stood rivaled, but certainly didn't surpass. There. A slight mismatch in the roses. A minor imbalance of color that would be missed by most samurai. Such imperfection would never be tolerated in the fantastic gardens of Kyuden Doji. But those were the exemplar for the empire. Always emulated, but never matched. Not even here, in the imperial city. Kyuden Doji... Hotaru touched the window sill, but no longer saw the gardens. Instead, she saw the Crane Clan's ancestral seat of power. A palace of white stone, an impeccable grace, perched on cliffs overlooking the Sea of the Sun Goddess. Waves pounded ceaselessly against their rocky base, a steady, booming rhythm. The cliffs from which her mother had thrown herself... The waves that had swallowed and taken her, because her father, Doji Satsume, had driven her to it. Hotaru's grip tightened on the sill as her thoughts changed again. Doji Satsume... Who had stubbornly kept the clan championship for years, even as he held the office of Emerald Champion, the Emperor's personal champion, commander of the Imperial Legions, and most senior magistrate of Rokugan. Satsume, who had only reluctantly passed the Crane clan championship to her at the urging of his brothers in law, Kakita Toshimoko and Kakita Yoshi. Satsume who was now dead, and just when the Empire needed its emerald champion the most. A thump from behind her, Hotaru glanced back. Framed by a pair of perfectly matched paper shoji screens, Doji Shizue fixed her cat, Fumio, with a disapproving glare over a scroll he'd knocked off a table. Leaning on her cane, Shizue returned the scroll to its place and minutely adjusted the ikebana flower arrangement the cat had apparently also disturbed. Hotaru couldn't help but smile. From the polished floor of teak from the far-off islands of spice and silk to the matched series of sumi-e ink drawings decorating the walls, Shizue's apartment was impeccable. There would never be a mismatched rose blossom here. Her cane softly tapping, Shizue hobbled over to join Hotaro at the window. What is it you see, Doji Ue? Hotaru dissembled. Why, the gardens, of course, resplendent under Lady Sun. Feigning disapproval, she added, and you need not be so formal as to call me Ue, sister, not when we are alone. If protocol becomes ingrained in the courts of the crane, Doji Ue, then, in this esteemed place, it becomes absolutely reflexive. In any case, is that all you see out my window? Her smile fading, Hotaru looking back at the gardens, but this time her gaze skipped over them, over the palace wall and the cluttered rooftops of the city beyond to the golden expanse of the distant Osari Plains. She couldn't see the crane blood spilled upon them in her clan's ongoing feud with the Lion Clan, of course, but she knew it was there, drying under the late spring sun. Hotaro briefly considered just saying, yes, that is all, but shook her head instead. No, I see an empire in turmoil. An attack by bandits! Even one so egregiously close to the imperial capital hardly constitutes an empire in turmoil. Hotaru touched the sleeve of her kimono, feeling the bandage beneath a white crane embroidered into the pale blue silk. A Sepun Shugenja had offered to importune the elemental water kami to speed the healing of her wound, but she'd refused. As she'd told the daidoji soldier who'd witnessed her battle with the ronin, she'd suffered worse injuries sparring with Kakita Toshimoko, her uncle and boisterous old sensei, and had only ever bandaged those as well. The ronin. The man had been a criminal, and had earned his death. Still... Hotaro couldn't help but understand his motivations, at least in part. Three years ago, a devastating tsunami had ravaged the Crane clan's coastline, destroying some of the clan's most fertile lands. No one knew how long it would be before the lands would again yield rice at all, much less in the abundance for which the Crane were known. The people were hungry, and they would only get hungrier. Shizue frowned. You are genuinely troubled, aren't you? The ronin who led the bandits was not entirely without honor. His intent was to secure food for his followers and their families. That is why I allowed him to die as a samurai in combat rather than face execution as a common criminal. Well, you must give me a full accounting of it all. As storyteller to the imperial court, I am always eager for new tales to tell. This one will not only entertain the court, but also bolster your reputation. Always the storyteller, Hotaru said, shaking her head. Anyway, yes, I agree that a single bandit attack does not portend the doom of the empire. But when the bandits are peasants simply seeking food, she touched the bandage again. And famine is only one of the difficulties we face. Our disagreement with the lion over the ownership of Toshi Rambo drags on. I must travel there soon, in fact, to evaluate the situation for myself. To the north, the dragons seek our help in dealing with the growing sect of dissidents and heretics, but we have little to offer them. To the south, the crab are badly pressed on the carpenter wall, but... We have little help to offer there either, and with each passing day the scorpion grip on the Imperial Court grows tighter, Hotaru made herself stop. But then, there are always problems afflicting the Empire, aren't there? Perhaps I am simply not yet used to my role as clan champion... Hotaru swept her naginata through the final movements of the kata called the one-strike blade, then stopped, assuming a resting stance. Kukita Toshimoko nodded from there, and he stood beneath the nearby sakura tree, opening his mouth to offer something, but Doji Satsume spoke first, cutting him off. That was very good, my daughter, Hotaru bowed. Thank you, father. Do not thank me, Satsume said, his face stone. Very good is merely a guest house on the road to perfection. A place to visit briefly, not to stay. You, Hotaru, seem to have made it your home. Some day you will lead our clan. If that leadership is merely very good, then you will have failed. That had been a year and a half ago? So, only a few months before Satsume had stepped down as clan champion, elevating Hotaru in his place. She had never heard him comment on the quality of her leadership of the crane since, not even to say if it was very good. And now he was dead. "'If I may be so bold,' Shizue said, "'I would agree that your newness to the position may be an issue.' Take your arrival here. As exciting as it turned out, why in the world were you traveling with that caravan in the first place, rather than with the official entourage to which you are due, and in secret at that? Thanks to the bandits, it's not much of a secret now, is it? Hotaru said, waving a dismissive hand. I simply wish to arrive in oda Uchi discreetly to gain some time to learn what I could about Satsume's death before the inevitable fanfare caught up with me. A bold, even rash thing to do, certainly not something Father would have done, which is why I suspect you attempted it. Hotaru just looked out the window. "'Well,' Shizue went on, "'you would have just run headlong into the Emerald Magistrates and their investigation regardless.' The death of the Emerald Champion is no small matter. Perhaps, but it does not matter now, does it? I have no choice now but to accept whatever the official sources are prepared to share. Shizue sniffed and made a fractional adjustment to another Ikebana arrangement, this one near the window. There is still somewhat less than official sources available, one of whom is standing right in front of you. The most important skill of a storyteller is the ability to listen, after all. Very well. What has this less-than-official source heard? That Satsume's death remains a complete mystery. He appears to have simply... died. That has, of course, led to all sorts of speculation among the rumor-mongers, such as... Some say the fortune simply decreed it was... His time to return to the karmic wheel. Others suggest more nefarious causes. Hotaru narrowed her eyes. This is not one of your stories, Shizue. The dramatic flair is unnecessary. Shizue smiled and minutely adjusted the ikebana again. Something else that has become ingrained, I'm afraid. Anyway... Some suggest his death was neither natural nor accidental, and now the Emerald Championship is available for those who might covet it. If that is the finding of the arrangements, then a price will be demanded in blood. Not least by our brother. Hotaru sighed. Indeed. Kuwanen-kun certainly has not felt the need to wait for the magistrate's findings. He is already demanding blood in the name of our clan's honor. Shizue leaned on her cane. Lord Satsume was his... Our father. I suspect family honor also fuels his outrage. She cocked her head. As I would expect it does yours. Hotaru turned back to the window. The death of Doji Satsume, Emerald Champion, is indeed a grave matter. His death is a great loss to the Empire, and if it does turn out he was murdered, then, yes, there will be blood. A great deal of it. Perhaps there will even be war. She looked down into the garden. The death of Doji Satsume, our father, however. She paused, her gaze on a koi pond surrounded by colorful hibiscus. Perhaps that is simply just as finally done a long moment passed. Finally, Shizue said, Our mother's death, in the end, was her own choice, a choice she should never have been forced to make. Hotaru snapped, turning. Father might as well have pushed her off that cliff himself. A soft tap at the door interrupted her. Shizue gave Hotaru a puzzled look, then hobbled past the shoji screens to the door. She opened it to see a servant who immediately bowed to the floor, then moved aside, letting someone else enter. Hotaru's breath caught as she recognized the new arrival, Bayushi Kachiko, Imperial Advisor of Rokugan and the most beautiful beautiful woman in the Empire. Empire. Fighting the desire to smile, to rush at Kachiko and embrace her, Hotaru simply bowed. So did Shizue but more deeply as befit her status relative to that of the woman who advised the emperor himself. At the same time, both automatically assumed a perfect facade of formality. Byushi Dono, Hotaru said, What a pleasant surprise. To what do we owe the honor of a visit from the esteemed imperial adviser, Kachiko, a crimson and black study in sinuous charm, returned their bows. How could I not pay my respects to the honored champion of the Crane clan upon her arrival in the imperial capital? Pausing to admire one of Shizue's ikebana arrangements, she let her fingers brush a sprig of gardenia, whose meaning in Hanakotoba, the language of flowers, was secret love. It would appear, however, that there has been a significant breach of protocol for which I must profusely apologize, on behalf of the Imperial Court. We were given no proper notification of your coming to Odasanuchi, much less of you having actually arrived. It is not a matter of concern, Hotaru said. Kachiko's eyes glinted through the minimal mask that framed them, leaving the rest of her features as fine as delicate porcelain exposed. Nonsense. Rest assured that appropriate corrective action will be taken so that in the future you shall receive the recognition to which a clan champion is entitled. Each of the scorpion's movements was deliberate and calculated even as she spoke. From a kimono slit to reveal almost scandalous glimpses of her legs as she walked, to a head tilted just enough to expose a barely appropriate amount of shoulder. But Yushikachiko was all about effect, and that effect was the seductive promise of more. Hotaru glanced at her sister. Shizue san, if I may presume your hospitality, would you allow us the use of your apartments for a brief time? Of course, Doji Ue. It gives me an excuse to enjoy the gardens before the setting of Lady Sun. Fumio-chan, do not give our guests any trouble. The cat blinked back at Shizue, then knocked a writing brush onto the floor. Shizue sighed, then bowed, turned, and walked out of the room, sliding the door closed behind her. Hotaro and Kachiko maintained their air of courtly proprietary for a moment after Shizue had gone, then broke into warm smiles. Kachiko stepped forward, taking Hotaro's hands in hers and opening her mouth to speak. Before she could, though, Hotaro pulled her closer, meaning to kiss her. She hesitated at a stray thought of her husband, now on his way to Shizuka Toshi, to learn what he could about a recent attack by pirates, and about the man Yoritomo who led them. Stopping herself, Hotaro simply looked into Kachiko's dark eyes instead a silent moment passed. My heart, Hotaru thought. Surely Kachiko can hear it beating so hard and quickly. Kachiko finally broke the silence. So, Hotaru, what is the meaning of sneaking into the city? Truly. Kachiko put on an exaggerated look of mock suspicion. Were you trying to avoid me? Of course not, I merely was hoping to have some time to myself, before all of the inevitable ceremony wrapped around me like suffocating silk. Kachiko released Hotaru's hands. And why would you do that? It was Hotaru's turn to be mischievous. Offering a coy smile, she said, Well, perhaps rather than trying to avoid you, I wanted some quiet time to spend with you. An eyebrow lifted over the top of Kachiko's mask. That can certainly be arranged. In fact, you must allow me to host you this evening. I have procured some sake from Ryoko Oworitoshi that will make even one so discerning as the leader of the Crane Clan jealous. I look forward to it. A moment passed, and then Kachiko drew back, her manner becoming more formal. While it flatters me to think you were skulking your way into Oda-san Uchi just to spend some time with me, that is not the reason for your somewhat unwarranted discretion, is it? I think you were hoping to take advantage of the relative anonymity however brief to learn some unornamented truths about Lord Satsume's death. An obvious plan, then, and apparently not a very good one. On the contrary. Had you not involved yourself in an unseemly fight with bandits on the road, you might have gotten away with it. Hotaru gave Kachiko the woman known as the Mistress of Secrets a wry look. Really? For a time, I may eventually come to know everything of note that goes on in this city, but eventually isn't instantly. Kachiko's expression became grave. As for Lord Satsume, you have my deepest condolences, Hotaru. He was a great man and an honored and loyal servant of the Empire. He will be missed. Hotaru wanted to appear to be appropriately grief-stricken, but she could only see the cliffs near Kyudin Doji. He will be missed, was all she finally managed to say. Kachiko's eyes narrowed at Hotaru's flat tone. I am no stranger to problematic relationships with one's father, but if I may be presumptuous, Lord Satsume is dead, Hotaru. I would hate to see your bitterness toward him outlive him. At least for very long. Hotaru looked at one of Shizoe's shoji screens depicting mountains stark against a red sunset. I do not deny my bitterness, but it is more than that. The circumstances around his death are... troubling. Ah, yes. I understand that the Emerald Magistrates continue their investigation. Perhaps the secrecy of your arrival had some benefit after all, and you have heard something I have not? Otaro turned her gaze on Fumio the cat, who had settled himself on a tatami mat near the inkbrush he'd vanquished. Were this not Bayushi Kachiko, Hotaro might have thought she was actually concerned she had missed something, or that she might be worried something was in the process of being discovered that wasn't meant to be. But this was Kachiko. So it was inconceivable that she wouldn't know exactly what the Emerald Magistrates had found so far. Some suggest that his death was neither natural nor accidental and that now the Emerald Championship is available for those who might covet it. Kachiko's brother, Haimetsu, daimyo of the Shosuru family, was reputed to be a master of poisons, more than capable of making it appear that someone had simply died. And while there was little love lost between him and Kachiko, that they were both loyal to their clan was beyond question. And with each passing day, the scorpion grip on the imperial court grows ever tighter. Hotaru looked up from the cat to find Kachiko watching her. No, Hotaru finally said. I have heard nothing aside from the stray bits of gossip. Like everyone else, I can only wait for the emerald magistrates to complete their investigation. A pause. Then, Kachiko nodded. Of course. In the meantime, do you intend to remain in the capital? For the time being, there is a funeral to prepare. I had originally thought to have it at Kyuden Doji, but I think it would be more appropriate for it to be here in Orasanuchi. An appropriate choice indeed. If there is anything I can do to assist, you need but ask. Hotaru took Kachiko's hand in hers. Thank you. That means a great deal to me. Kachiko placed her other hand over Hotaru's. Now, I would love to stay, but I'm afraid I have matters of court to attend to. I do expect to see you this evening, though. Hotaro wanted nothing more than to be with Kachiko now. But she simply nodded. Of course. Then I shall send a servant with the details. Until then... Kachiko held Hotaro's hand in hers a moment longer, then released it and turned to the door. She and Hotaro exchanged appropriate bows, and then she was gone. For a while, Hotaro simply stared at the door. Eventually, she turned and walked back to the window. The play of light and shadow in the garden had changed with the movement of Lady Sun, making it seem a completely different place. Again, though, her gaze was drawn beyond it, to the horizon. Rice fields, fallow and empty, blood upon the Osari plains, darkness pounding on the carpenter wall, heresy and sedition. If Rokugan was the Emerald Empire, then the Emerald was flawed. Small cracks threatening to lengthen, to widen, to cause the whole of it to crumble, to fragments, and dust. The Price of War, by Mary Murdoch. Some weeks later in contested territory. Matsu Suko crouched within a thick copse of trees waiting in ambush with nearly a dozen other units of Lion Clan Samurai. The dense foliage hushed the screams and steel clanging of the fighting below, but nothing could rid the air of the raw iron smell of blood. The scent tickled her into a fury, her legs itching to spring to attack. She eyed her commander, Okoro Totori, but the smoothness of his face betrayed no hint of his strategy as he watched the battle from afar. What is he waiting for? Suko's contingent had arrived nearly an hour ago, ready to reinforce the dwindling forces of Okoto Arusau, the Lion Clan champion, in the territory dispute with the Crane Clan. In an act of insolence, the Crane had bolstered their occupying forces in Toshiranbo, the northernmost lion city, to force a lion army away from the contested grain-laden Osari plains in the south. Arasau had been campaigning at the foot of the city for several weeks, building siege weapons and needing reinforcements only to make his final push to retake the city and ensure the crane could not use it as a staging ground against them. Erisowu's older brother, Toturi, had been summoned from the monastery to answer that call for aid, yet... Why does he hesitate? Hesitate. A small crane contingent sped past their hiding place, bearing torches, intending to sneak behind Erisowu's forces and set fire to their battering rams. She clutched her katana and waited for Toturi's signal fan to herald the charge. However, he remained still. What are we waiting for? Suko hissed, the heat of her blood curling her fingers tighter around her katana. Her fists shook. The crane are right there! Totori did not answer, merely lifting his fan parallel to the earth, the sign to wait. Suko turned away in disgust, shifting her attention to her comrades in arms, their anticipation as palpable as her own. Down the line, Matsu Gohei grinned, unnervingly jovial in the face of danger as ever. Just behind her, Kitsumoto's boots creaked as he fidgeted, likely attempting to figure out what Totori was thinking. As if thinking works, she glared at Totori again. Weakling, Ariso wouldn't wait on a sly calculation. Victory is only moments away! Suko strained to see Arisu in the faraway skirmish. The fiery gold glint of Arisu's helmet caught her eye as he sliced through a crane ashigaro in a single stroke. The crane's shoulder and head parted, and Arisu powered through the gap straight into another crane warrior, smashing into his face with a fierce blow and bellowing in a ferocious battle cry. Suko's place was by his side, fighting toward victory, not hiding in a thicket like a shy mule with a cowardly master. Despite Erisowu's ferocity, the torch-bearing crane had proved enough of a distraction to pull the lion from the city's walls. In that moment, a deluge of crane spearmen poured through the gates, crashing into the forces at Arisu's back like a blue wave over golden sand. Screams shook the sky as the spearmen lines slammed into the lion's troops, dividing them from their battering rams. Arisu signaled for a regrouping retreat, and the lion samurai fell back, running past the trees of Toturi's hiding place with the crane spearmen in furious pursuit. Totori! Suko hissed as the lion and crane armies passed by, but TOTURI still did not flinch, merely watching. She raised an arm as if to strike him, but Mozo snatched at her elbow. Patience, Tsukosama, sama Mozo muttered, struggling to keep his grip on her arm as she wrenched it from his grasp. Our commander is waiting for the crane momentum to swing past recovery. Suddenly... To flicked his fan, signaling the charge. Battle cries rang from the forest as the lion reinforcements burst from the trees, finally joining the fray. They caught the crane in a tight pincer attack as Arasau, seeing the fresh lion troops, pressed his forces hard in retaliation. Suko cut her way through the battle to where Arasau slashed through three crane ashigaru, making short work of them despite his battle fatigue. "'You're late!' he boomed to Suko, smiling. Crane, blood, and dust spattered all over his handsome face. He spun with dexterous footwork to counter a nimble crane samurai slash at his throat, finishing him with a swift strike. "'Your brother was hesitating!' She yelled over the clashing steel, deftly slicing through a crane samurai who stumbled too close to her. The body fell with a heavy crunch, and she leapt over him toward a crane who danced around Mozo, threatening to take off his head with her graceful kata. Suko crashed into her, disrupting the pretentious fluidity of the crane fighting style and landing a killing blow. totori thinks too much! Arisu laughed, leaping forward to meet two more crane ashigaro in their frantic attempts to regain the upper hand. I always tell him that! That's why you're the clan champion instead of him! She called back, turning to face a spry crane samurai in blue lacquered armor. Suko charged, challenging the graceful agility of the crane with a violent thrust. Despite Suko's superior strength, the crane's deft spins and parries deflected all of the blows away, and his armor mitigated the power of her strikes. A quick cut sliced across her arm, her shoulder, her side, her face, but she smiled despite the pain. We are the teeth of the lion. Suko hurled forward to crowd her opponent's defensive stance, overpowering it with brute ferocity. With a loud cry, Suko slashed at a weak spot at his throat and he fell to the ground. Drum beats sounded from atop the walls of Toshi Ranbo, and the crane responded with a retreat. Suko wheeled around to find Araso again, ready for orders to pursuit, but Tuturi had gotten to his brother first. Suko ran to catch the last of their exchange. Siege would be better, Tuturi insisted, again the calmness of his face clashing with the violence of the scene. If we take the city by force... So you admit that should we pursue, we would take it! Arasuo said, his handsome brow furrowing. "'The odds are now on our side! "'Thanks to that pincer attack, we have seriously depleted their forces! "'All we need to do is push! "'The gates are open! "'Today we regain what is rightfully ours!' Toturi's mouth twisted in seriousness, and he stretched his full height as if trying to play the older brother. Taking it by force would spark an all-out war with the crane and turn the Emperor's favor against us. Through siege, we can hope the crane will surrender to save face and avoid a slaughter. Suko pounced forward. Hope for surrender? What kind of lion are you? She snarled. "'Trust your instincts, Erisobu-sama. Remember, those who attack first shall win. This is our path to victory. A siege has no glory, and hope cannot win us the city!' Erisobu locked eyes with Suko, pride blazing in his gaze. He smiled. Her heart burned. "'Lady Suko agrees with me, toturi san With her advice, I shall lead our final charge towards the city. Toshi Ranbo will be ours!' With a powerful arm, he signaled his banners. The lion forces united under their champion, fell into disciplined ranks, ready for the charge. Suko and Toturi joined the lions on either side of Arisou. To victory! He shouted, taking a last look at Toturi, then at Suko, before charging after the retreating crane. Suko raced toward Toshi Ranbo, her heart swelling, as her brothers and sisters of the lion rushed to overtake the foe. Erisowu and his elite swordsmen bounded toward the crane in fierce strides, overtaking the first of their prey in moments. With a mighty leap, he crashed down upon the back of a large crane spearman, knocking him to the ground. He tumbled forward to knock the legs out from under another retreating crane before springing into the air to again smash down upon another. Suko veered to the right to cut her own path toward Toshi Ranbo's gates. She stabbed at one crane, who tripped another with his falling body. Suko hurled herself at them, finishing them quickly. Her katana lodged deep in the lacquered folds of a breastplate, so she kicked at it to wrench her sword free again. She regained her pace. Just three hundred more paces to the gate. Victory is upon us! A flash of blue and white emerged from Toshi Ranbo. Doji Hotaru, the crane clan champion, appeared with a small body of archers to provide covering fire for the fleeing crane. They let fly a volley, raining death down upon the gaining lion, two-zipped past Suko's face, so she darted toward the gate to find shelter from the hail of arrows. She leapt over several mangled crane bodies that marked Erisowu's ferocious path ahead of her. She managed a glimpse of the top of his shining helmet. Suko sped forward to catch up to him. She could hear his battle cries, which swelled her with the passion of battle. He raged through the crane ranks, slashing through the blue bodies on either side of him, leaves before a tempest. He was a mere two hundred paces from the gate. Suko could see Hotaru's face contorted in fear as the raging force approached. The crane champion's eyes glistened with tears. "'Victory!' Suko cried. "'Erasoul will lead us to victory!' As Suko drew closer, however, the look on Hotaru's face became clear. It was not fear. It was sorrow." The Crane Clan Champion drew back her bowstring in a long, graceful pull, and let an arrow fly. Her bolt sped like lightning straight into Arasau's chest. The Lion Clan Champion didn't break pace. Suko shoved through the thong, trying to clear a path to Arasau, but a few dozen Crane Ashigaro still crowded the way, ramming her in all directions. She dropped her katana and pushed back against the bodies. Another arrow flew from Hotaru's bow. The arrowhead slammed through the back of Arasua's helmet with a sickening snap. His momentum slowed, and he tumbled forward onto the earth. Suko screamed, but she could not hear the sound. Silence shuddered through her body, her stomach, her throat, her heart. Numbness spread down her limbs, her legs shook, barely holding her up as she stumbled. Eventually, after an eternal moment, she stood over what was once the greatest samurai in the lion clan. She fell to her knees Choking as her lungs stiffened, every part of her trembling in disbelief. No! She clutched at his shoulder, her hands trembling too fiercely to lift him. This is a dream! A nightmare! Toturi rushed to her side and heaved Erisau over. Hotaru's arrow stuck out of his eye, reddish water welling up its shaft, spilling into the other clear, open eye that saw nothing. shivering. Suko turned from Ariso's dead gaze to Toturi, but he did not notice her. With his jaw clenched, the only sign of his pain, he stared at Hotaru. The white-haired samurai wiped away her tears before fleeing with the remaining crane back into Toshi Toshiranbo, the gates closing behind them. The silence broke. The chaos of the battlefield flooded back over Suko. Moans of the wounded and dying crimson, spattering blue and brown alike. Motso approached, Erisowu's fallen katana in hand. Crane blood still dripped from its blade, staining Erisowu's golden armor. Lord Tuturi, Motso whispered, his gentle voice cracking. He turned the ancestral hilt toward the bereaved brother, as oldest living heir of Okoro One Eye, you are now clan champion. Suko shut her eyes and blindly reached out to grasp Arisou's gloved hand. It was still hot. War! Suko roared, slamming her fist onto the table, scattering maps and troop markers onto the ground. Tuturi clenched his teeth, reading the faces of the other lion clan samurai assembled in the war pavilion like a tragic story. Their faces flickered in the firelight, sorrow deepening the lines of their frowns. Kitsu Motso fidgeted, unable to make eye contact with Suko or Toturi Matsu Agatoki's wrinkled mouth lengthened into a grimace. Tuturi turned back to Suko. Hers was the only face that wore rage. Pure, seething rage. War against the crane! Suko repeated, the harshness of her voice slamming into the others as though to batter them into submission. Today's losses should not go unpunished. It is an insult to our clan. It's the price of battle, Agatoki growled. The old lion glared at her. Our clan, above all, should know this price, and the further cost we should pay for an all-out war with the crane. The Emperor will not look kindly on an illegal declaration, Mozo mumbled. Erasu chose to attack the crane. The crane can claim they were defending themselves, so we, we cannot seek immediate vengeance for our champion's death. We must go through the proper channels. More waiting?! Suko spat. Totori, stop behaving as a simpering child and act. Seek retribution, reclaim Toshi Ranbo, the Osari Plains, and more from those thieving murderers. Make them cower for their insults. Think of our clan's honor. You are clan champion now. What will you do? Their stares demanded an answer. He was now champion. He whom his clan had once passed over for his younger, stronger, more powerful brother, Arasowu. What What will I do? do? A thousand pathways opened up before him. Choices. So many choices. Arasowu. Death. The Emperor. The Empire. Hotaru. Each road through his mind branched a dozen ways like a river, like a bursting star. He followed each strand in an instant, discovering the plots, gauging the people and their actions, inserting uncertain figures, each dangerous, each a risk. Revenge? War. He began counting the bodies, the true costs it would demand. Damn you, Totori! Suko yelled, scattering his thoughts. You coward! You are not worthy of leading us as champion! You are passed over for your lack of martial skill! You are a mockery of our ways! Silence, Suko sama! Agatoki thundered, his hand snapping to his katana. Your insubordination is a grievous error in discipline. Ue is now in command and. Stop! Tuturi shouted. Towering over the lion samurai before him, his brow wrinkled in seriousness, but he set a calm hand upon the table. Agatoki-san, I thank you for upholding our ways. Discipline, honor, and decorum, but lion voices shall never be silenced. Suko san has a right to speak, especially in this time of grief and heartbreak. Sukos eyes narrowed in steely wrath. How dare you! She whispered, her voice sharp like a knife. She marched out of the pavilion. Agatoki shook his head in shame, lowering his hand from his sword. Fool. Lady Suko's ways are unbecoming of the Matsu family daimyo. Agatoki-san, Tutori replied. You know full well that the Matsu are born and bred to fight for any cause they find just. Do not hold this against her. As an Okoto... I must take this responsibility to lead even the wildest. He turned from the council to stare into the fire, hoping it would illuminate the correct path through the labyrinth of his thoughts, but the signposts were illegible in the darkness. Finally, he spoke. I shall not make decisions until I have spoken to the clan generals and other family daimyo. I will also seek counsel from the emperor, Send messengers to the palace in Orsan Uchi, informing him of my brother's death. motsu you will ride to Yoja no Shiro and prepare the funeral rites for Erisobu-sama. I will have Sukosama sama follow to deliver the body. She will not want to go, Motsu said. Duty rides before us, Tuturi said, lowering his head in reverence. He was her betrothed, and this is her last obligation to him. Mozo bowed and left the tent. Agatoki remained a moment, standing by the door, a full head and shoulders shorter than his new champion, but still straight and proud in his carriage. "'Okoroue,' he said, resting a strong, calloused hand on his shoulder. "'Your time has come. You know the Okoro ways, but a lion is more than his roar, more than his mane, more than his teeth, more than his heart.' A lion is all of these. Sukosama was right to ask what you will do, because now all of the lion clan families look to you to act as one. Tuturi nodded. I'm afraid with my brother's loss, a schism is inevitable. Sukosan's sans rage will poison many against me. And as clan champion, you must not let that divide us. Never. Agatoki bowed and vanished into the night. Tuturi wandered back to the fallen maps and troop markers. He picked them up in several armfuls and set them back on the table in a heap. The wooden lion figurine had a leg broken off. This is a mess, isn't it? He picked up the figure and touched the amputated stump. My mess. Tuturi spied the map of Toshi Ranbo on top of the pile. The paper crumpled into crooked plains and false mountains. Once again, the threads of pathway started to appear. He could see Suko's rage swerving off into the distance towards an avenger's fire. He saw the Emperor's polite, bloodless answer to the news of Erasowu's death. Hotaru-san killed my brother today. Those words burst unexpectedly from a thick dam in his mind. With a gasp, Tuturi crushed the lion figure to splinters and squeezed until his fingers were numb. Slowly, he opened his palm, and there lay a lifeless wooden lion. Drops of blood welled around the bone-like slivers where they had pierced his skin. My, My brother, brother. Arisou. A rustling at the door roused him. Tutori turned to see Mutsu standing there. A message to he said, a little winded as if he had just run across the camp. From Champion Doji Hotaru. He held out a delicate white scroll with a silvery seal upon it. Toturi took it and nodded before Motso bowed and ran out. The paper was scented with plum blossoms, symbolizing all at once perseverance, hope, and the transitoriness of life. Elegant calligraphy curled over its surface. To the Lion Clan Champion Okoro Toturi, he broke the seal. Okoro Toturi, brother in arms, friend of my heart, and now Lion Clan Champion. I write in the heat of this sorrowful night as the sun sets upon an era for your clan. Okoro Erisou Udono was the best of your clan. A noble warrior whose life called down the pride of your ancestors from the heavens. He was an admirable foe, and the flowery crane diplomacy and social obligation melted in a pause of the brush strokes. I know you are too strong to admit your pain. However... If my own soul can hardly fathom the horror of what occurred today, I know that somewhere in you this same sentiment lurks, this anguish, this blackness. I can offer no consolation that will bridge this abyss. I can make no reparations for what I have taken. Yet you are now clan champion, and what you do will not only speak for the Okoto in your brother's memory, but also speak for your clan. I know you to be level-headed, wise, and honorable, so I trust that you will take the best course of action. Yet, though we have been friends for many years, I can hardly guess what that will be. I write to ask, Totori-san, what will you do? Loyally, faithfully, your comrade of old and fellow servant to the emperor, Doji Hotaru. Totori shut his eyes. Hotaru killed my brother. He sank to the floor, dropping the bloodied lion figure and Hotaru's letter, lowering his head into his hands as the scene played over and over before him. Two arrows the broken body, Hotaru's tears, Suko's heart. Araso why did you not listen? Why did you leave me with this mess? What will you do? They had all asked Suko. Agatoki, even Hotaru. What What will I I do? A writhing chaos rose before him, again, bursting in a snaking multiplicity of pathways, each needing to be followed. Twisted knots of action to take, the inevitable cry for revenge, the threat of war, Eraso's goals and victories cut short in a thousand bleeding dead ends, all twisted around choices Tutori dared not make. The trails bled together into a deep ocean and crashed around him. He pressed his heart with his bleeding hand. Erasu's voice, echoing deep from a memory, cut through the confusion. Brother, you, you think, think too, too much. much. The image his brother's strong face loomed before him, his eye now missing like that of a Koro One eye smiling. You think, you think too, too much. much. I know, Tuturi responded aloud. He ground his fists into the earth. That is why you were chosen, not me. You are the man of action. You are the one who could do everything. Silence answered him, the silence of the dead. Erasu would never answer him again. And in that silence, Tuturi felt a pause in which the universe waited for him to act. What, what will, I will I do? do? Tuturi opened his eyes. On the far side of the tent, rising above the broken lion figurine on the floor, the Lion Clan Mon flapped in a gentle breeze, golden and glowing in the firelight in fierce splendor. The Rising Wave, by Mary Brennan, read by Robert Croy. (music) Meanwhile, in the northernmost mountains of Rokugan, a more cautious man or one with less cause, would not have attempted to leave Shiro Muromoto so early in the season. Even by Dragon Clan standards, the winter had been a harsh one, and although its grip was loosening, it had yet to let go. Snow still towered in heaps where Hymen laborers had shoveled it out of the streets, and at night the cleared ground became a tiny replica of the mountains, the mud frozen into stone-hard peaks and valleys. Muromoto Masahige would have preferred to wait another week, or even two, before setting forth on his journey. Not for his own sake. Though as the years passed, his joints objected to the cold more and more, but for the sake of his followers. He risked their safety by traveling so soon after the equinox, and he knew it. But delay would only risk greater trouble for the clan as a whole, and Masahige knew that if he were to ask, the men and women of his retinue would insist on leaving as soon as he required, even if that meant riding into the teeth of a blizzard. He would never insult their honor by asking. So... They mounted up in the courtyard of the castle and headed out into the bustle of the town, down the main street toward the gate. Seven bushi and their ashigaru, townspeople scattering out of their way as they swept through. It would be enough, Masahige hoped, to ensure a quiet journey to the west and north. Even in the best of times, the Dragon Mountains were not the peaceful fields of the crane, and after such a hard winter, he had to take precautions. With his thoughts on the hazards of the journey ahead, he did not see the hazard in front of him until it was almost too late. Masahige hauled desperately on the reins. His gelding reared, shrieking, and skidded sideways, one hoof slipping in the mud. Masahige threw himself clear and rolled, knowing that if he did not, the horse would land on his leg and break it. The equine scream that overlaid the clatter of his armor told him his gelding had not been so lucky. But But the the child. child... before he even regained his feet, Masahige looked for the child he had almost trampled. He found her, kneeling in abject apology at the side of the street. A girl, perhaps twelve years old, dressed in the simple kimono and hakama of a bushy trainee. She pressed her forehead to the ice-slicked mud. Murumoto Ue, please, forgive this careless one. Masahige pulled her upright, scanning her for injuries. You are unhurt? Yes, my lord. I have no excuse for my carelessness. Forgive me. Relief turned his bones to water. If I had hurt a child. My lord, his Hatamoto Miramoto Hitomi, stood over his fallen horse. Rakusetsu is badly injured. I don't know if he can be saved. Masahige would have sacrificed a dozen horses to save this child's life. Whatever issue plagued the dragon, whatever offense they had given to the fortune of fertility, It only affected people, not the animals of their lands. Horses and wolves and bears thrived, while humans dwindled with every passing year. The problem had crept up on them for a century or more before the sharp minds of the Kitsuki family noticed it. By now, it was undeniable. The dragon were not having enough children. And among the samurai class, the problem had become desperate enough that the dragon had resorted to desperate measures. The girl Masahige had just saved, was she born to a samurai family? Or was she originally a peasant, identified by some agasha shugenja as possessing enough spiritual merit to be taken in and given the rearing, the training, the identity of a samurai? There was no way for him to tell by looking. In truth, Masahige did not want to know. He collected his wits and his dignity, stepping back to a more respectable distance. Addressing the girl, he said, You must show more caution in the future. Abushi does not fear danger, but must be alert to its presence. The girl knelt once more in the mud of the thaw. "Hi, Muromoto Ue. Go, Masahige said. Only after she had departed did he turn back to Hitomi and his horse. A quick examination told him the truth. Even the most talented horse doctor could not save his gelding. The healing would be too slow. Even with a sling to hold Rakusetsu's weight off his bad leg, he would never be fit to ride again. Only the prayers of Ushugenjo might restore his mount, and Masahige was loath to beg the kami for their blessings in so minor a matter. Not when the heavens themselves seemed to be condemning the dragon for some unknown sin. He did the necessary work himself cutting Rakusetsu's throat so the gelding would not suffer. Afterward, Hitomi cleaned his knife while Masahige stepped into a nearby temple. He poured a dipper of water from the fountain over his hands and shaved head, then sought out a monk to take the impurity of death from him with a paper wand. By the time he emerged, one of his bushi had gone back to the castle and returned with a fresh horse. Then he mounted up once more. Outside the walls of Shiro Muramoto, trouble was stirring. He needed to speak to the clan champion before it was too late. The loss of Masahige's gelding had unsettled his followers. None of them spoke of it openly, but he saw the effects in the frequency with which they prayed or paused to make offerings at roadside shrines. An unpleasant omen to start their journey, and when they reached Tall Pine Village, they found another. Where... Did the tree go? Hitomi asked abruptly, breaking the silence that had lasted for most of the afternoon. The pine had stood atop a ridge east of the village, alone in its splendor, visible for miles around. Now the ridge stood bare. Squinting, Masahige could just make out a broken stump, jagged and black. Uneasy murmurs rose behind him, then fell into silence. They passed the remnants of the tree not long before sunset. A winter storm must have blown it down, and the local hymen had chopped away a large portion of the trunk. Masahige instructed his clerk, Kobori Sozan, to make a note of that and inquire whether the peasants had received permission from their overseer to burn the material as firewood. By law, large trees such as this one were the property of the local daimyo for use in construction, but that didn't stop the hymen from taking the wood for their own use and in a winter as bitter as this one had been, he doubted they would have hesitated to do so. Tulpine Village was a small place, significant only because it served as a way station for travelers. Judging by what they found there, Masahige and his retinue were the first people to come through since the thaw began. Their chambers were unprepared, the tatami musty and damp, and the food served up was winter's leavings, coarse grains boiled with burdock root. Why no rice, Hitomi demanded the headman Senjiro bowed low. Hitomi was a tall woman, and although she was slender beneath her armor, every bit of her was muscle. She could snap the headman in two without resorting to her sword. Please forgive our humble village, Miramoto sama he said. Vermin broke into our stores last fall. What rice they did not eat was badly fouled. We kept this grain for you, but it is nearly the last we have. Hitomi scowled, but when she looked at Masahige, he stopped her with a tiny shake of his head. Senjiro had been the headman of Tall Pine Village for over a decade. He was not the sort to gorge people on stolen rice and lie to a daimyo about it. No, the village's misfortunes were just another sign of the heaven's displeasure. Fit to make a crane faint, Hitomi muttered. But after that she subsided. The dragon were no strangers to hardship, and by this point in the season the meals in Shiro Muromoto were not substantially better. Only with the thaw would things improve. The thaw, and the favor of Tengoku, Masahige could only hope to hasten one of them. In so small a village, with the weather still so bitter, there was little in the way of diversion after the meal ended. His bushi sat shoulder to shoulder around the brazier keeping the heat within the ring of their bodies and talking quietly among themselves. Masahige slipped outside to deal with necessities, watching his breath fog the air in the moonlight. In the softer lands to the south, cherry blossoms would already be blooming. The cold, still air carried sound with perfect clarity. Not far away, in the hut where Sanjiro's wife, Yugi, had prepared their meal, he heard a woman's voice murmuring, Shoshinikie. 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 Masahige's blood ran colder than the wind. Devotion, Devotion to the Little Teacher, or, or if written with a different, different character, character absolute, absolute trust in the Little, little teacher. teacher. It was the mantra of the Perfect Land sect. The Perfect Land, here in Tall Pine Village, The sect had flourished for years in the hinterlands of Dragon Territory, in the villages too small to have names. So small they were lucky if they saw a monk from the Brotherhood of Shinsei twice a year. People living in those isolated valleys developed many strange customs. And they gladly latched on to a theology that told them they did not have to learn any difficult practices or cultivate merit within themselves. They only had to call on Shinsei, the little teacher. be freed from the cycle of rebirth. Of course, it appealed to peasants, who lacked the time and education to devote themselves to the requirements of the Brotherhood. Three simple words in Shinsei would save them. The practice was controversial at best. The phoenix had outlawed the Kiei entirely, visiting harsh punishments on anyone, monk or peasant or even samurai found chanting the phrase. They said it was heresy, a false path, not a genuine route to enlightenment. Masahige was no religious scholar. He understood very little of the theological debate over the Kiei and its efficacy, or lack thereof. He knew only that followers of the Perfect Land sect had grown more vocal in recent years, and more violent. To find them here, not in the hinterlands, but in a key way station on the road north. Other concerns forgotten, Masahige ducked back into the house. Hitomi-kun, a moment of your time. She rose without hesitation and followed him outside. The voice had fallen silent, but Masahige led Hitomi away from all possible ears before he outlined to her what he had overheard. Had there been a time when Hitomi smiled? Perhaps before her brother died, but rarely since then, and hardly at all in recent years. Her scowl now was characteristic, as was her response. Is that why they have no rice? Because they have been sending it to the sect leaders? "'I doubt it,' Masahige said. "'The crane have had very little rice to sell in recent years. "'Our lack now is only natural. "'I am more concerned by this evidence of the expansion of the sect.'" Ordinarily, Hitomi's unbroken attention would have been on him, but now she stood warily, hands gripping her sword hilts, ready to draw them both. Her eyes darted left and right, searching the quiet shadows. "'Our road had to pass through this village,' If they intend to ambush you, this would be an ideal place to do it. The reports had said they had grown bolder, but surely not that bold. What would it gain them? To kill the Muramoto family daimyo would only brand them as criminals in the eyes of the entire empire. They are already criminals, Hitomi said. Only in the Phoenix Lands. Here there has been no decree against the sect there are many paths to enlightenment hotomikun and if there is the slightest chance that their mantra might lead them to that goal should they not be permitted to follow it her jaw hardened they say they will find enlightenment after death in the paradise they say shinsei has created for them people who believe that will not hesitate to throw themselves on our blades for their cause she might be correct The last reports he'd received before winter set in had hinted that the followers of the sect were arming themselves. That, more than hungry wolves or the usual late winter bandits, was why he had ordered his party to travel in armor. The leaders of the perfect land said the world had entered the age of declining virtue and that samurai were to blame for the empire's many ills. Such words walked close to the border of treason, or even crossed it. Masahige took a deep breath, feeling the frigid air bite into him. "'What course would you advise, Hitomi-kun?' She answered without hesitation. "'Stop the sect from taking root here, muramoto We'll gather all the hymen together and question them until we know how many adherents there are. Then make an example of them, to show others what fate awaits them down that road.' seven bushi and their ashigaro. They could do as Hitomi said. Leading military expeditions into the crevices of the mountains was nearly impossible, but here the problem was easy to reach. Easy to reach, and difficult to solve. Following Hitomi's advice might very well precipitate exactly the kind of widespread armed conflict he hoped to avoid. But not following her advice, what price might the dragon pay in future days? What price might the Empire pay? Masahige's jaw tightened. He imagined his own son kneeling alongside Sanjiro and Yuki, head bent to the strike of the blade. A decision now would be premature, he said at last. I already intended to take this matter up with the clan champion. I will report the situation in Tall Pine Village to him and see what course of action he favors. Hitomi didn't like it, he knew. She always wanted swift action, even if the cost would be high. But her discipline was stronger than her anger. She bowed and murmured, As you say, my lord, I will have the horses ready at first light tomorrow, and we will keep watch tonight. Masahige would never be presumptuous enough to question the wisdom of his clan's divine founder. The kami, Tagashi, had valued solitude, a trait shared by all of his successors. And there was no better place to find it than in the forbidding peaks of Northern Dragon Territory, the fringes of the range known as the Great Wall of the North. If it made conferring with the clan champion difficult at the best of times, well, no doubt there were good reasons for that ones beyond Masahige's own ken. At least the road was always clear for him. It wound along narrow ledges, up steep slopes, and over passes still choked with snow and ice, but it was there. Those who sought the High House of Light without invitation could find themselves lost in the mountains, sometimes forever. The High House towered above Masahige's party as they approached. Half-fortress, half-monastery, it clung to the bare stone of its peak like the talons of some great beast. The only approach was via a narrow set of stairs more than a thousand steps high. At the base, a cluster of buildings waited to receive visitors, providing shelter to those who would not enter the high house itself. Silent acolytes, children in the simple robes of those training to join the Isezume, took the reins of their horses. Masahige climbed the stairs alone, leaving the rest behind, even Hitomi. Over his shoulder, he carried the satchel with the clerk's reports, ready to deliver into the appropriate hands. In other parts of Rokugan, such a task would be seen as beneath the dignity of a family daimyo, but not here. Someone waited for him at the top of the steps an unmoving figure who did not so much as shift his weight while Masahige made his steady way upward. He was recognizable, even at a distance. Even among the Isezume, few would show themselves in public wearing short, green-dyed Jinbei trousers, and nothing more. But Togashi Mitsu was exceptional, even within his order. While samurai throughout the empire would adopt children if they had no suitable heirs of their own lineage, the leadership of the dragon had always passed to the most talented monk of the Isezume, regardless of the monk's origin. The boy, So, had been an acolyte at Fuku Rokujin Seido, a foundling left there by unknown parents when the clan champion had found him. Now, So had become Togashi Mitsu, heir to the dragon. Most heirs would dress in fine kimono or armor, but Mitsu's sole decoration was his tattoos, which his near-nakedness put on glorious display. They wreathed his torso and arms and even his lower legs. Monkeys and crows, centipedes and dragonflies, a great crab across his chest and a tiger across his back, and the head of a dragon arching up his neck and over his shaved scalp. All the work of Togashi Gaijutsu, the greatest tattooing master among the Isezumi. Winter had sapped Masahige's conditioning. He had to concentrate not to visibly gasp for breath as he greeted the clan's heir. I have come to request an audience with Togashi Ue. Of course, Mitsu said. The High House was never surprised by Masahige's arrival. I am to take you to meet with him as soon as you are ready. I hope that's a good omen. Even a family daimyo often had to wait to speak with his clan champion. Masahige surrendered his satchel to an Isezume waiting inside the gate. A woman knew enough to the order that she only had two tattoos gracing her bare arms, a snake and a butterfly. Then he followed Mitsu into the High House of Light. Unlike most castles in Rokogan, its fortifications did not consist of stout walls and deep moats. The mountains were the first line of defense and the strange forces that so often hid the road were the second. Anyone who overcame those and still wished to assault the High House faced a choice between that narrow staircase and the sheer cliffs of the peak. Where another clan champion's capital would have archers' towers, the High House had shrines and meditation halls. Where other families had armories and barracks for ashigaru. the Togashi had the Isezume with their strange abilities. An atmosphere of serenity pervaded the place, serenity and something else, an otherworldly touch that lingered in the small hairs on the back of Masahige's neck. He bathed quickly, grateful to shed his armor, which felt so out of place in this monastic setting. When he finished, he dressed in the much simpler kimono and hakama provided for him. The wind cut like knives through the thin fabric but he set that aside, focusing on his task. Togashi Yokuni, champion of the dragon clan, did not receive Masahige in a grand hall. Instead, he sat on a bare platform atop one of the precipitous drops that served the high house of light for an outer wall. In sharp contrast to Mitsu's scant clothing, Yukuni wore armor of antique design with a separate panel to cover the right-hand side of his body. Masahige had never seen him without that armor, including the helmet and the mempo that covered his face. Masahige knew he should not compare his own champion to that of the dishonorable Scorpion Clan, but to serve a man without ever seeing his face, it... was difficult. Mitsu knelt a short distance from where Yokuni sat cross-legged. Masahige bowed low, touching his forehead to the stone while the mountain air slid like ice over his bare scalp. Lord Togashi, although winter is hardly gone, matters within your lands cannot wait. I beg leave to present my report. A flick of Yokuni's gauntleted hand told him to continue. Like a man composing an ink painting, Masahige laid out the vital strokes, leaving the finer details for later considerations. The harshness of the winter and the looming shadow of the lion aggression to the south. The continuing failure of dragon births. The danger posed by the perfect land sect. Forces pressing in on all sides, threatening to crush the clan between them. Togashi-ue, Masahige said. We must reach beyond our own borders and form an alliance with the phoenix. Separately, each of our clans is easy prey for the lion, but together we may yet resist them. Furthermore, our own efforts to solve the mystery of our decline have come to naught. Of all the clans, the phoenix are the most likely to have the wisdom necessary to aid us. But they will not do so unless we make concessions, and there, we have only two real choices. The first would be to break with the unicorn. The Isua remain suspicious as ever of the Iuchi Meshodo techniques and other heretical ways. They would be glad to see us close our western border." But we benefit from the unicorn's military strength, and more importantly, without the marriage alliances we have formed, without the children those widows and widowers bring into our ranks, we would be gambling our entire future on the hope that the phoenix can find the solution to our problem. He paused. Even a family daimyo could not stare his champion in the eye, but he searched every tiny shift of Yakuni's body language for a hint of the man's thoughts. The armor defeated him it made Yokuni as inscrutable as the stone beneath him. Masahige had no choice but to go on. The second possibility is that we take action against the Perfect Land sect, as the phoenix have been urging for years. If we can root out that heresy, if you judge it to be heresy indeed, my lord, I am certain that Shiba Uji Mitsudono would consider it a great sign of friendship to his clan. Yokuni spoke at last. When the grain falls before it is ripe... The harvest is poor, and famine follows. Did he mean that the time for action had not yet come? Masahige had years of experience with his clan champion and still struggled to interpret Yokuni's cryptic responses. This time, however, he thought the meaning was clear. No samurai should fear death, but each life lost was the clan's strength sapped at a time when they could ill afford it. Yes, the cost would be high. Carrying war into our own valleys is difficult, and any strike against the sect is likely to spur rebellions in response. But there is another possibility. He bowed once more to Yukuni. Togashi Ue. I have heard stories of an Isezume with a gift that might spare us the pain and waste of bloodshed. They say that when Togashi Kazue-san speaks to a man, her words make their way into his mind until he can think of nothing else and he loses all will to fight. If this is true, she could neutralize the leaders of the sect, taking away the central force that makes them so potent a threat. With them gone, our chances of returning their followers to the true path of Shinsei, by some means other than the sword, would be much higher. Mitsu spoke up, without any signal from Yukuni that Masahige could see. Kazue-san's ability is not a thing to use lightly Miramoto Ue, Death only destroys the body, and those who fall in service to the heavens better their karma for the next life. But to interfere with the mind, that is another matter. I do not suggest it lightly, Masahige said. Despite his control, the words came out sharp and hard. Were it a handful of lives against a handful of minds, I would not hesitate to draw my sword. But our clan's survival hangs in the balance. What are a few heretics and rebels against that? What What is a a single single child against that? that? Masahige turned away from the monk, pressing his forehead to the stone once more in supplication. Too often it was like this, Masahige bowing beneath the weight of his troubles, the decisions he lacked the authority to make, while Yakuni, who possessed the authority, sat in silent contemplation, and around them the world drifted ever closer to the brink of disaster. Please, Togashi Ue. Masahige said in the strongest voice he could muster, I beg you to lend me the assistance of Togashi Kazue san. With her we may yet avoid a slaughter. The rush of the wind was his only answer, and then the rattling of armor shifting. Masahige looked up, alive with hope, but to his horror he saw that Yukuni had gone rigid, his head thrown back his body trembling within the ancient armor. Be calm, Mitsu stopped him with an outflung hand. There is nothing to fear he is in the grip of a vision, nothing more. Masahige knew that the champions of the dragon had inherited some measure of their kami's foresight, but he had never seen it strike home. He waited, fists clenched, hardly breathing. Now... At last, he will tell me what to do and it will be correct, because the heavens themselves have guided him. It seemed to last forever. Then the trembling subsided, Yokuni's body relaxing. Mitsu crouched at his side, but assistance was unneeded. Yokuni raised one hand to his mempo, then lowered it. I see a wave, he said, his voice barely audible over the wind. A great wave, rising up to strike the land. Masahige had never seen the ocean, only depictions of it in paintings and woodcuts. But he could imagine the shape described by Yukuni's hand, the crusting edge of the wave curling overhead like a scorpion's tail. Where it strikes, Yukuni's voice faded, then returned. Devastation. Odusan Uchi laid waste. Countless lives lost. Another tsunami? Masahige flinched. The one that struck Crane Lands three years before had wrought devastation all across Rokugan, in forms ranging from food shortages to scorpion dominance in the courts. The Imperial Capital had been spared the brunt of it, but might not be so lucky a second time. I will send a messenger to Kitsuki Yoruma-san immediately, Masahige said. He will warn the emperor. But Yukuni shook his head and went on. Stripped by the wave, the wasteland becomes a battlefield. On its barren plain, there is nowhere for the enemy to hide, no shelter to protect them from the emperor's might. It. His eyes were almost impossible to make out, deep in the shadows of his helmet, but Masahige had the sensation that Yukuni was staring far past him to the lands beyond their own. It must be so, Yukuni murmured, if the battle must come, then let it be on the barren plain. Only there can we prevail. Not an actual wave, not a tsunami. Yukuni spoke in metaphors. What he foresaw was something else entirely. Something, Masahige feared, that had nothing to do with any of the troubles he had come here to address. The clan champion focused on Masahige at last. Prepare your bushi. Tell the daimyo of the Agasha and the Katsuki families the dragon must move beyond our borders at last. What transpires in our mountains is a mere pebble against the avalanche that is coming.
2: Dark Hands of Heaven Written by Annie Vandermeer-Mitsoda Read by Max Williams <music> Meanwhile to the far southeast a brisk wind scudded across the dry plains, tugging at the robes of the Shugenja and snapping the banners atop the Caillou Wall. Unmoved, Hida Kasado stared impassively from the battlements to the Shadowlands beyond, where a vast force of enemy troops swayed and shifted like grass. In the eyes of his troops, even battle-hardened as they were, he had seen the shadow of fear. Samurai do not fear death! An easy sentiment for those who shelter in the safety of our wall. My samurai know death too well not to fear it, but they will face it anyway. Cassada stared down the foe with the same impassive gaze for which the champion of the Crab Clan was so well known. Around him gathered his children and closest retainers, who did not seem to share the great bear's taciturn demeanor. Look at them arranging their forces so considerately. One could almost mistake them for crane, sneered Yakamo, Kasada's eldest child, as he casually lifted his tetsubo onto his shoulder, posturing with the great iron and jade war club as a youngster might a toy. It will make it even easier to crush them outright. From Kasada's left came a word, "Hm," and he knew without needing to look that it came from Sukune. I do not like this, his youngest son said matter-of-factly shadowlands troops do not often amass in such a fashion. They are much more likely to hide their real strength. A bit of a costly maneuver for it to be a trick, displaying their power like this, moosed Oishi, and Kasada grants to his right briefly to see his daughter frowning in concentration before she looked at him. Do you think this might have a connection with the attack to the north, father? Kasada gave a low grunt of consideration, overshadowed by Yakamo's sudden rough laugh and the thunk of his son's war club thumping the ground. "'Children quaking at the sight of goblins!' the young man sneered. "'Such a proud example for our noble father. "'Do you want me to read you your bedtime stories while the real warriors fight?' Sukune bristled. "'And you would run headlong into peril, endangering our clan with your bloodlust?' Do you think that you can take on an entire army by your set- grunted quietly and held up a hand, satisfied when his children immediately lapsed into a reluctant silence. The champion's eyes tracked once more over the immensity of the battlefield, noting each unit like pieces on a game board, arranged in precise rows. A frown creased his features briefly. They're much more likely to hide their real strength he imagined a small pile of hidden pieces beneath his opponent's hand. Unease clenched his heart. Turning from the vista before him, he scanned along the wide corridor atop the great wall for his chosen advisor. Kayu Shehobu, he bellowed, deep voice ringing with the power that led warriors to victory and death. A tall woman looked up from one of the giant siege engines nearby, then turned and approached at a brisk pace wiping her dirty hands on a cloth. Though the leader of a powerful family, Shehobu was never far from something she had built or repaired, and it was apparent she would not be satisfied the battle could begin until she had inspected all the siege equipment personally. Her bow was brief, but full of respect. Hiraue, how can I serve? What is the latest report on the near breach in the Ishigaki province? Slowed by rains, but proceeding apace. The damage was severe, but the Caillou estimate completion within seven days. Kasada gave a small nod of agreement. With our current numbers, what are our siege capabilities? The Caillou Damio's usually warm brown eyes dimmed, and her frown puckered the long scar on her cheek. We have the troops needed for the siege engines and a small force to repair damage and shuttle ammunition, but we are spread thin, she sighed. The Caillou family will never fail the crab. But if the wall itself is hit by that force out there, we cannot guarantee its security. Sukune let out a long, worried breath. Our jade stores, father? The pale young man trembled a moment as he suppressed a cough, but he swallowed hard and continued. They are nearly empty. If a significant force breaks through, our resources are insufficient to deal with the possible incursion of the taint. If the land becomes corrupted, we do not have the means to cleanse it. We will lose ground. Kasada turned his eyes to a nervous young retainer, who started and bowed as he saw the clan champion looking his way. Yasuki Oguri, what of our missives to the emperor? Have they not gotten through? Oguri shook his head, his words wary. They have, Ue. My father has confirmed they have been delivered, and he has sent the emperor's replies back. But each time it is the same. A formal letter, the finest calligraphy, and the smoothest paper. The emperor regrets he cannot send any aid at this time. For supplies, for troops, for jade. The young man looked down awkwardly, embarrassed. It is always the same response. Yakamo growled, slamming his war club on the ground again. A sham of courtesy, he bellowed, seething. I shall go to Utosan Uichi myself and demand what we are owed as the protectors of Rokugan. Kasada waved a hand as if sliding a door closed, and Yakamo cut off his rant, subsiding into low grumbling. Do no disrespect to the Yasuki. Their daimyo is there now. If Yasuki Taka cannot catch the Emperor's ear... The thought trailed a moment, and then Kasada snapped his attention to Shihobu once more. Respect to the Cayu and their wall, said the champion briskly. But where are the weak spots closest to this location? Shahobu's brows pinched in thought. While Kasada's visage had been still as granite as he planned, the Cayu face was all energy, the calculations flickering across her features like a merchant's hand on a soroban, beads clacking back and forth. Just north of here, a larger stream required installing a runoff pipe. It should have a grate, but no seal is perfect. If you require, I will assign a retainer to show you. Kasada nodded his thanks, then cleared his throat. Around him, every spine straightened. This is the duty of the crab. The kaiyu Wall stands to protect Rokugan, but our people do as well, and even stone can only take so much before it shatters. As Kuni Osaku once raised a wall of water so the wall could be built, so today shall we raise a wall of iron. Kayu shohobu the tall daimyo, bowed to her champion. Direct all your troops to crew the siege engines and ferry ammunition, Haruma Yoshino, split your troops. Longbows atop the wall, short bows at the base, each with a signal arrow.'" The daimyo of the Haruma family bowed, the well-oiled leather of her scout garb bending without the slightest creak. "'Anything else, hideu eh Kasada considered a moment. "'If you think they are ready, then proceed.'" Yoshino bowed again, and Kasada could feel the weight of the other's curiosity. It hardly mattered. Either the plan would succeed, or it would fail and everyone else had other things to consider. Kuni Yori, he continued, and the Kuni family Damio bowed as well, dark mustache twitching with a too wide smile. Split your forces as well. A quarter to support the Kayu, and the rest to aid on the ground. Your skill and those of your Shugenja will be needed on the field. Finally, he turned to his children, who all bowed as one. Yakamo, you will be at my side. Sukune, you will remain on the wall to relay my commands. Oishi, collect your best troops, follow the Kai Retainer to the weakness Shohobu spoke of, and do sweeps of that area. Make it clear the utmost vigilance is required. Although his daughter made no visible signs of displeasure being left out of the main battle, Kasada sensed her brittle for a moment before she bowed to him. I will make it so, champion, she agreed, turning crisply on her heel to leave, a retainer nearly stumbling in his haste to follow her. Tension rippled again as Yakamo grinned his expression impish, and Sukune glared at his brother, grinding his teeth in an unspoken argument. Kasada raised his chin sharply, and once again the siblings quieted, the tension dispelled like a hand waving away smoke. Turning from his children's argument, he took a final look from the top of the wall. The forces of the Shadowlands roiled and shifted, waiting patiently for their encounter. Such patience felt wrong a storm would never choose to wait for a soldier to find shelter before loosing a deluge of rain. The Crab Clan champion gave a low grunt, one which all who knew the Great Bear understood as his final punctuation before considering a matter closed, and turned to descend the stairs, his sons and retainers following as smoothly as one of Shehobu's machines. Just outside the gates of the caillou wall, the forces of the crab moved into position, waiting for the word of the man who once again stared impassively into the distance. As the others around him shifted from foot to foot, or shrugged to adjust where their sode armor sat on their shoulders, Hida Kisada waited, as tall and impassive as the cedars that rose beyond the wall's protection. To the damio of the Hida, armor had always felt as comfortable as his own skin. Although, feeling the beginning of an ache at the base of his neck, He wished the weight of years sat on him half as well. The crab forces waited patiently as each of their units arrayed themselves into formation, and Kasada carefully counted each of their number, measuring them against the plan in his mind. One by one, his commanders surrounded him and his eldest son, who stood at his right, cracking his neck and throwing back his shoulders like a dog straining at the leash, until the Haruma Damio arrived, her steps as silent as snowfall. Kasada's dark eyes met her a moment and locked, asking a wordless question answered by her small nod. "'The court is arrayed,' stated Kuniyori in his sibilant half-whisper of a voice. "'We await your orders, hide u nodded at his generals and withdrew his gunbai from his belt, raising it aloft. All around him, the shifting of thousands of bodies came to an abrupt halt." the great clack of legions of troops coming to order, echoing across the vast landscape. Each gesture of his warfan meant a shifting of stones across the wooden wilderness of a game board, and the movement of hundreds of pieces along the wind-swept plains of the Shadowlands. A point and left-to-right sweep of the warfan sent the Shugenja of the Kuni to the flanks to prevent the enemy from cutting off a retreat back to the wall. A point and right-to-left and the Haruma scouts raised their bows, dacu above the wall and you below, a point upward with a backwards flick, and the siege engines atop the wall were readied, the grinding of their mechanisms audible even from hundreds of feet away. Finally, the troops settled into their positions, and Kasada lowered the goombai a moment, finally clicking his mempo into place, the steel and gold faceplate hiding all but his focused eyes. He raised the war fan once more, holding it high in the air as his generals looked on nervously. The balance of life and death on a winged wand of iron, emblazoned with the Crab Clan symbol. Moments passed as though the world were taking a final breath. Then the gunbai sliced forward and the world erupted into chaos as battle was joined. Shrieking hordes of bakemono ran forward, some actually aflame for what the goblins thought of as an honor, and scores of them fell, riddled with haruma arrows. A hideous, tentacled horror rose roaring from the enemy ranks, but its roars turned into shrieks as a well-aimed rock from the caillou catapult found its mark, the monster writhing in agony before shuddering and going still. The shambling forces of undead attempted to push against their southern flank, but the prayers of the Kune Shugenja fractured the earth beneath their feet, shattering them against the ground. Above all this chaos rose the towering form of Hida Kasada, Gunbai sweeping through the air, guiding the crab forces as tiles on a board, rising to meet threats and bring them low. Suddenly, a hellish shriek split the air, an attachment of Onikage, ridden by the foul undead samurai known simply as the Lost, burst forth from the enemy lines, sweeping in in a scythe-like maneuver and heading directly for the heart of the Hida forces. Kasada frowned. He had set his troops to tease the enemy into striking from the left, to seize them in a pincer maneuver. He had even chosen this spot for his command post, about a hundred meters from the wall for its rough terrain, to attack them from the right, Through an area meant to disrupt swift charges, and where the crab's defense was strongest, seemed a move ill-considered for even the most foolish of the Shadowlands spawn. Still, the Onikage were powerful creatures, and the lost even more so. In his mind, Kasada saw a game piece pushed forward by the enemy, breaking the lines as its own troops fell away, its best forces in one attack counting on just enough surviving to strike at the heart of its opponent's command. He was only too glad to make this attempt a futile one. The goonbai hissed through the air, sending a naginata-wielding detachment forward. Even against the unearthly speed of the undead horses, the bladed spears of the crab troops slashed with deadly efficiency, sending armored corpses flying as their mounts gave eerie screams and crashed to the ground. As the remaining lost staggered to their feet, more troops flooded in to engage the enemy, and Yakamo, no longer able to restrain his bloodlust, gave a great bellow and lunged into the fray. Kasada growled at his son's foolishness and opened his mouth to call him back, just as the ground shook beneath his feet and the standard sounds of battle coalesced into screams of terror. A vast shape, black and rough as stone burst out from behind the shattered mass of Onekage, and crashed through the crab troops like a meteor, scattering bodies in its wake. So the strike at the command had been genuine after all, but he had misidentified what the enemy's most powerful force was. When he had sent his troops to deal with the cavalry, he had left himself exposed. An uncharacteristic curse slipped from his lips as he brought his Kanabo up just in time to block the twisted black blade of his opponent, the impact sending the Crabbed Clan champion staggering backwards. Kasada's enemy stretched itself to its full monstrous height an oni, its massive bulk armored in chunks of chipped obsidian, its eyes burning like the fires of Jigoku itself.
1: Crab champion! You and your troops will fall.
0: I will take great joy in tearing off your limbs and devouring you alive
1: like the meat you are.
2: Quesada allowed himself a smile, dangerous and thin as the blade of a knife, and held his war club at the ready before him. Then let us begin, he declared, and the Oni leapt forward with a howl. The world around the champion seemed to fall away, all complexity stripped free as cloth before flames. There was only he and the Oni, strike and parry, lunge and dodge. The Oni roared in anger as the champion's iron club shattered one of the obsidian plates latched over his demonic body. The champion bit back a groan as the beast's backhand caught his thigh, sending him briefly stumbling to one knee. A chuckle from the monster became a strangled grunt of surprise as Cassada's lunging swipe caught it under the chin, cracking part of its jaw and splattering the ground below with sticky black blood. The aged champion grunted as he blocked another strike with his Kanabo, his joints howling with pain as they never had in his youth. Age was another opponent he faced, and his best defense was simply to shut it away an act well rehearsed with the pragmatism and stubbornness for which his clan was so well known. Suddenly, the Oni bellowed in surprise, more black blood splattered onto the ground, and a lone Bushi appeared with Otushi in hand, the warhammer slick with gore. The figure took a moment to duck its head to Kasada and hurriedly begged forgiveness for the interruption. Kasada, still in the haze of battle, only grunted a reply. The two joined against the creature, the smaller warrior acting as distraction while Kasada broke more of the beast's armor, the foul obsidian shattering into pieces, bits embedding themselves in the creature's flesh. The Oni growled and took another step forward, making as if to swing its blade at both its assailants, and howled in pain as the ground gave away beneath its left leg, burying it up to the knee. The Oni roared in anger and confusion, jerking as its leg was further pinioned, lashed down by rough ropes and spiked into the earth. Small furry creatures scattered within the hole, scurrying away into tunnels within the earth. Haruma Yoshino's strange plan had worked then. He whirled at the feeling of the Bushi's hand on his arm. "'Forgive me, my lord,' the warrior yelled. "'But the battlefield is in disarray. Sukune-sama craves your signals. I can hold the beast here while you disengage.' The haze cleared, and the chaos of the battlefield returned. Kasada heard at once the roars of Mor'oni and the screams of his troops. Gone was the red-tinged mist of combat, and the gay board slid into the champion's mind once more. He clapped his hands upon the bouches and nodded, and turned away as the warrior ran at the restrained monster, hammer in hand. The image was lost in moments as Kasada retreated, and the battle swallowed the pair. Kisada turned back to the wall to see Okamu laughing with bloodlust and smashing a trio of lost warriors to bone splinters. With a bellow, he called his son's name, and the young man started as if in a dream, then wordlessly ran to his father's side. Through scores of surging goblins in Lost and the madness of a hundred small fights, they pushed back to the edge of the wall, where Harumi Yoshino and her archers were knocking and firing arrows as quickly as their hands could move. Yakamo grabbed one of them, who yelped and nearly dropped his bow in surprise. "'Prepare the signal!' Kasada commanded, and the archer hurriedly grabbed a special reed arrow and shot it into the sky. As it arced upwards, a plume of fine red dust trailed after the missile, and then it plunged towards the ground with a piercing shriek that echoed across the field. Almost instantly, the crab forces began to withdraw. "...pulling back toward the wall, and with a howl of triumph the Shadowland forces started to follow them. Then Kasada raised his gunbai high, and the sudden backward strike of the war fan was echoed by a twanging chorus from above the wall, as countless mechanisms released at once." The front lines of the advancing forces had just enough time to scream, if they were able, and not voices like the undead, before they were obliterated by every rock, stake, and boulder the Caillou siege engines were able to fire. For a brief moment, there was dust and silence. Then Casado's war fan waved once more, and the troops returned to the field, bloodied but determined to continue. Smoke, oily and black, billowed upward from the pyre of the Shadowlands dead as bodies, smelly bakimono, crumpled lost chunks of oni, were thrown onto the growing pile by groups of peasants covered head to toe in brown robes. The mud crows were a common sight after battles, either drawn by the need for coin or commanded to as punishment for some crime. It was easy to tell one from another as the ones supporting families carried trinkets to ward off the Shadowlands' taint, charms tied to their sleeves, lockets holding papers with prayers scrawled on them, chipped bracelets on thin wrists. They surely knew charms were worthless against such a grave evil. Only blessed materials like jade showed any signs of preventing the physical and mental corruption inherent to the Shadowlands and its creatures. The mud crow splashed oil wherever the pyre's flames faltered, forcing it to choke down its vile meal of death. There were more here, he realized suddenly, than he'd ever seen in one place before. There had been many battles in his life, and aches such as the ones he felt now, but today had been different. Both his aches and the conflicts had been growing worse. One day, his strength would not be sufficient to master either of them. The sound of a stomping gait approached, and the Damio knew before he heard the voice who it was. "'Quite the battle!' Yakamo exulted, laughing with pride. "'And this is hardly the only pyre for the enemy dead. "'Next time the Shadowland scum should just save us all the trouble and throw themselves into the fire directly!' "'Kasada remained silent, and this time Yakamo seemed oblivious.' recounting how he had taken down a trio of goblins with a single swipe of his tetsubo. The clan champion turned his head slowly, and a nearby samurai hurried to his side, long since accustomed to his master's subtle gestures. My lord? There was a bushi who aided me against an obsidian-clad oni, allowing me to withdraw and focus my attention elsewhere, Kasida commanded softly. Find out what has become of the samurai and report back to me immediately. The retainer bowed crisply and retreated, and Kasada turned his attention back toward the caillou wall, just in time to see a messenger jogging towards him. Ikamo made as if to interrupt the woman, but stopped as the messenger held up a cloth with Oishi's personal seal, bowing to them both. "'My lords, I beg your pardon. Lady Hida has returned, and she has asked that I request your presence in the parade grounds. A brother, Lord Sukune, has been summoned as well.' Kasada grunted acceptance and gestured for the messenger to lead the way and he and his eldest son followed. "'It's a shame you didn't slay the only yourself, father,' Yakamo drawled as they walked. "'Especially one clad in obsidian. Imagine! The glory of the kill, you!' Kesada stopped short, and Yakamo stumbled a moment in confusion, turning to look up at his father as the daimyo crossed his arms over his chest and drew himself up to his full height. "'Have I need of glory, eldest? Do you think the Hida family requires it?' Or all of the crab? Do we seek such things? Yakamo opened his mouth to reply, but a gesture from his father shut it again. You must learn this lesson well, eldest, Kasada said, keeping his voice low. Strength is a grand thing. Yours reminds me much of my own when I was your age. But strength is iron, meant to be tempered. And glory is a fine thing, but it is nothing without pragmatism remember that. Yakamo nodded, a bit sullen, but properly humbled, and with a knowing grunt, Kasada began walking again. His son and their retinue smoothly followed after. Oushi and her troops waited in the large courtyard just inside the Cayu wall's gates, armor splashed with black blood and a small group of prisoners, Bakemono and an ogre, chained in a line behind them. As Yakamo and Kasada approached, Sukune ran down the last steps from the wall, out of breath and wheezing slightly, and Oishi gestured quickly for one of her retainers to offer her sickly sibling a drink from her water canvas. "'Be at ease, brother. I have survived,' she said kindly, concerned evident in her voice. "'I see that not all of your troops were as fortunate,' Sukune replied, catching his breath. "'That and your prisoners make me wary. "'I expected a smaller number to try and break through our lines.' Owushi's expression grew grim. Actually, two troops tried to break through the wall. The goblins snuck through the pipe that Kayu Shehobu mentioned, but the ogre and his brethren actually climbed over a shorter section of the wall. That was where my troops were lost, but we were able to capture one all the same. I'll make certain to give him to Kuni sama per his earlier request. The color drained from Sukune's already pale face, and he staggered a moment, the implication of the dangers seizing on him. Yakamo growled and ground his teeth, tensing his hands on the hilts of his weapons. Only Kisada remained outwardly calm, nodding slowly. Send a pair of Shugenja to the sites of the battle to check the area for taint, and make sure they are well-equipped with jade. Sukune opened his mouth to protest, but nodded instead. I will check our stores, father. I know there will not be much, but I will do what I can. I pray they will not need it. The tension was disrupted by the appearance of the samurai whom Kessada had spoken with earlier, striding in from the gate. Two brown-clad peasants trailed after him, carrying a covered body on a stretcher. I beg my lord's pardon, he said with a deep bow, but I searched the battlefield as you asked. The oni clad in obsidian is dead, found with a hammer buried in its skull. Unfortunately, as we moved the oni, we found this body in its grasp. The samurai walked over and pulled the sheep back, revealing the still form of the bushi, splattered with the black blood of the oni. It seems they gave their own life to kill the beast. Kasada walked slowly over, noting for the first time that the crest on the bushi's helmet was Hida, that of his own family. The strap that held the mempo in place on the helmet was snapped, and the daimyo carefully lifted the mask aside. The retainer gasped and Kasada was deeply grateful that the man's exclamation covered his own shock. Ah, Hidetomonatsu, the samurai said. She was a promising warrior. Fortune can be cruel. At least she died well. The bushi's face was still, almost peaceful, eerily young to be clad in such armor and splattered with such gore. Kasada looked up to see Uishi gazing at him, and for a moment, something in him trembled like the plucked string of a shamisen. He recalled the first moment each of his children wore armor, Yakamo nearly popping out of his first set, even at an early age, Sukune stumbling under its weight, and Uishi confident as if she were born to wear it. Confident as Tomonatsu had been when she stood next to him, facing the oni by his side. Give her a proper funeral with all honors, he heard himself saying, pulling the sheet back over her as he pulled his wits back together, locking his emotions back under the armor. She honored her family and served her daimyo well. The samurai bowed, and he and the peasants shuffled away with Tomonatsu's body. Behind him, Kasada heard his children talking, Yakamo and Uishi discussing their respective battles Sukune speaking to a retainer about finding what jade they could. But the Crab Clan champion hardly registered it. Instead, he watched the train of mud crows bringing in casualties, some to the infirmary, shrieking for aid, others to their families to be cleaned and redressed in simple robes before cremation, their personal effects passed on in accordance with tradition. Still others were laid out in rows, so infected with the taint that they were to be burned immediately in the smaller courtyard beyond the parade grounds, where servants ferried logs of rough-cut cedar for their pyres. For long moments he beheld the rows of the dead, neat as pieces on a game board. The most corrupted of them would be burned in their armor, leaving nothing to send back to their families but a note of thanks and regret. It would not be on paper so fine as the Emperor's, but it would mean something, to the crab, at least. Hidekasada's eyes finally moved upwards, following the plumes of dark smoke on both sides of the wall, fed by the bodies of enemy and ally alike, snaking like black fingers up into the sky. How much smoke would it take for the Emperor to act? Or would all of Rokugan have to be aflame for his majesty to notice?
0: Risen from the Flames by Robert Denton III, read by Jeannie Calvar. <music> A week later, in the Phoenix Lands to the east, Sukune was mid stride across the threshold of the forest shrine before she realized her mistake. She winced as her right foot touched the blessed ground on the other side of the torii arch before her left. Before her peers and in the home of her ancestors, she'd barged into her family's shrine like a lion. When they had both progressed beyond the entrance, Sukune whispered to the man matching her stride I did it again. No one noticed. Tadaka replied, "Just keep going." Sukune tucked her hands into her kimono sleeves, and matched her pace with that of her charge, keeping their place in the wordless procession of top knots, sheba family mon, and creamy white obi. Their path was a winding upward twist of stone steps and fiery torii arches. The crisp breeze. "'stirred the sloping glades of pink moss to either side, "'sweeping up their petals to scatter along the way. "'It was a blessing in the unseasonable spring warmth, "'even as it painted the temple arches "'with thick coats of pollen. "'Tadaka whispered prayers while he walked, "'passing a string of beads between his large hands, "'one jade orb at a time. "'He towered, a full head above the rest,' his elaborate layered kimono making his broad back into a lone banner for the Asawa family. In each backward glance he drew from the others, Sukune saw eyes brightening with respect. Those cast at her, she could not read. At the top of the stairs, their path finally opened into a stone temple courtyard. The mortuary tablet still stood at its center, but the other trappings of the previous day's funeral had long since been cleared away the procession poured into the courtyard the shiba samurai dividing themselves into small groups as they awaited their turns in the sprawling two-story hondan sukune ladled water onto her hands and forearms then yielded the blessed waters to the next in line she left the smothering crowd to gaze into the nearby reflection pool where shrine maidens fished fallen peach blossoms off its surface. In the wavering mirror at her feet, a Seventeen Summers girl looked back at her. "'You're obsessing,' remarked Tadaka, appearing at the pool beside her. "'I cannot make such mistakes,' she whispered. "'Not here. If I err during tonight's ceremony, no one will notice,' he reassured her. "'They will be too busy watching themselves to care about you.' "'Well,' he added, "'except for the ladies. "'They will be watching me.' "'Her mouth twitched upwards. "'I'll bet you truly believe that.' "'They stood in silence, watching the Miko work, "'the steady dripping of the net into the glossy pond "'and the ceremonious sweeping of the stone rim, "'interwoven with the singing of nightingales. "'You know,' Tadaka said, "'if either of us should worry about tonight.' it would be me. That would be a first, Sukune replied. Exactly, Tadaka smiled. The wind shook the pink-white canopy, releasing a cascade of blossoms and filtered light. His eyes twinkled at the shrine maiden's distress at the flowers scattered around him. When the breeze steals the peach tree's flowers, it appears spontaneous. But, in fact, it was a planned event, that the breeze would come that the tree would be here, that the petals should fall just so. These things were determined at the time of its birth. In light of this, what sense is there in worrying? That seems fatalistic, Sukune said. I take heart in it. He stepped closer to the pond. Patches of light moved across Tadaka's body as they reflected from the water. I have seen encouraging signs, he whispered. The masters favor me, Well, most of them do. He chuckled. Tonight's ceremony will grant me the clout I need. When they see the wisdom of my plans, I will go to Crablands to complete my research, and you will come with me. There, we will plant the seeds of the future. He paused, then softly added, our future. His knuckle grazed hers. In the reflection pool, The girl's cheeks adopted the shade of the blooming camellias. Do my eyes deceive me, or has Asawa Tadaka-sama come down from his mountain? Sukune stiffened as Tadaka grinned towards the new voice. A bright young man approached from the courtyard gathering. Above his white obi, imprinted over the chest of his elaborate silks, was a fiery wing surrounding a naginata, the mon of the heaven's wing. Tadaka crossed his arms at the newcomer. Tetsu-san, I was wondering when you would have the courage to approach me. They laughed together while Sukune watched, as a child might spy on adolescence. Congratulations are in order, Tetsu said. It is a great honor Master rujo has bestowed upon you. I shall endeavor to be worthy of it, Tadaka replied. I understand you too will be participating in the ceremony. Tetsu nodded. Hi, tonight I will demonstrate Sensei's addition to the Heaven's Wing Kata although I will certainly fall short of his grace and expertise, I will give my all in honor of his memory. Sukune looked away as they chatted. Their voices faded into the ambience of the temple courtyard, a carpeting din of exchanged greetings, shouts of recognition, and steep bows. They were old, young, and Gampuku fresh, more members of the Shiba family than she could recall ever having seen in one place. Above, the wind stirred the tapestries hanging from the slanted roofs of the stages used for the sacred dance gifts from other temples in other provinces they were like the sheba beneath them vibrant splashes of colour amid the grey stone and polished wood of the shrine i'll say for one a rustic and faded depiction of a waterfall thrust high above a pine canopy the column of stamps in a dry corner told its story lion in origin Completed in Phoenix lands. Among the others, its colors were faded, inexpert, and unbalanced. Sukune decided that she liked it. She could relate. After all, I must make it up to Sukune kun. Tadaka teased, her name snapping Sukune back to attention. Tadaka was perhaps the only person who could call her kun and get away with it. It is because of my presence that she has no break from her yojimbo duties. Even when all the others do. She shot him a hot glare. A playful smile was his reply. Sukune san is quite diligent, Tetsu offered. His soft smile touched his eyes. It is good to see you again. You were missed at the Kanto festival. Some others talked, but I assured them that you would have been there if your duties had permitted it. As she always did when she had no recourse, she merely nodded and replied, As you say. Finally alone in the inner sanctum, Sukune reverently placed her incense bowl over the hot coals. Within moments, twin coils of agarwood, smoke, arose, entwining the marker of the recently deceased, a lacquered box of ashes displaying a slip of paper. In the hazel candlelight, Sukune read the words on its surface, Shiba Ujimitsu, champion of the phoenix. Sukune held the string of beads just as the miko had shown her. She tried not to think about what she'd overheard from that Miko, that the phoenix champion had passed before his time, that it had strongly affected his brother. Instead, she closed her eyes and lowered her head, whispering a prayer for the spirit of the deceased. He'd sat at the head of the banquet hall during the Gumpuku ceremony at which she had come of age. She recalled how he had appeared then his squat frame and plain features mismatched with his glorious winged kataginu jacket, unfurled broadly as if to take flight. To his right was the seat belonging to his most promising student, another seat of high honor. Shibatetsu sat there on that day, in the seat she imagined would have otherwise gone to her brother, had he been alive. A clatter resounded from outside. The memory faded. Sukune looked up at the stone statue of Sheba, the founder of her family. He was kneeling in this depiction. It seemed larger to her now than ever before. Outside, she heard the chiding of a priestess as she directed the shrine maidens in preparation for the ceremony. Just one night. Then she and Tadaka would return to their simple lives, to their future together. Quietly, she reached into her obi and withdrew a thin cloth. Frayed at the edges, no longer than her forearm, the plain cotton still displayed the cracked mon of her brother's dojo. Her fingers clasped the cloth, his tenugui. She released a quiet breath, and for a moment, it was as if he were here, removing this cloth from his forehead and wrapping it around the tiny scrape on her knee, smiling at his little sister. I will do my best, she whispered. Above, the stone face of Shiba looked down at her. In the moonlight courtyard before the shrine, Tetsu's slender Naginata traced the stars with its blade. It spun in silver arcs around him, not pausing between his steps. Sukune saw not two entities, man and blade, but one body in a dance of light and steel and emptiness. Encoded into each graceful gesture was the death of an invisible opponent, each silk-rustling swing a final breath. Tetsu froze, one foot tucked behind the other knee, balanced on a single leg, spear outthrust. In that moment, he became a bamboo rod floating on a stream that reflected the sky. Tetsu placed his weapon on its stand and pressed his forehead to the ground. As he rose, the courtyard brightened with the afterglow of his performance. The fiery braziers licked moths from the night air in their jealousy. He returned to his seat, a lone sakura among the gathered maples. There was no other who could have performed the Heaven's Wing Kata so flawlessly, not even if Ujimitsu was alive. If the late champion still dwelled in this world— Surely it was in the skill of his highest pupil. A dull chime raked the sky, signaling the hour of the rat. The collective witnesses of the courtyard turned as one to face the temple entrance. The shrine's painted doors slid aside. As one, the Sheba bowed. Among the procession of the shrine maidens, priests, and Shiginja that silently entered the courtyard, Sukune caught the glint of moonlight tracing the edges of a lacquered palanquin. Resting on a cypress stand, was a curved sword. The detailed feathers intricately carved into its sheath drew the light of the braziers, glowing crimson and burnished gold. Even from where she sat, Sukune could see each pearl set into its mantiskin handle, the untouched ribbons of silk woven flawlessly around its pommel, and the curved bronze wings that were its suba handguard. Fushiki, the ancestral sword of the phoenix, wielded by every phoenix clan champion since the dawn of the empire. The last to leave the shrine were five figures in elaborate silk robes, their winged kataginu, each marked with a different mon of an element captured within a perfect ring. As they entered the open night, Sukune recalled the five elements as Tadaka had long ago taught her, fire, water, air, earth, and void. Five natural elements and one elemental master for each. At last she spotted Asawa Tadaka as he took his place beside the Master of Earth. Tadaka looked even more resplendent than before in his ceremonial robes. The empty space in his backward-cast shadow tugged at her, but she walled her heart against the instinct to join him and remained in her seat. Only those beloved by the kami could preside over this part of the ceremony. If he felt odd without Sukuni there he gave no sign. Towering over his sensei and half his age, Tadaka was a tall pine beside a withered oak. There were other apprentices as well, one for each elemental master. As one, they lowered their heads, lips moving in unison, their words did not carry to the crowd, instead rising directly to the heavens. Sukune instinctively felt the weight of another's gaze. From his seat, upon the courtyard dais, the temporary lord of Shiba Castle looked at her. Shiba Sukazu, former Hatamoto of the clan champion, as well as his brother. The braziers cut faint wrinkles into his face and lit the streak of silver that adorned his temples. The white of his obi nearly glowed, as did the scroll clutched in his hands. The final words of Shiba Ujimitsu, his death poem, were enclosed within that scroll. She froze in his expressionless gaze the guilt of having met his eyes flooding her face with heat as she struggled to identify what mistake she made to draw his attention but there came no reprisal from the castle's lord he merely nodded and then returned his attention to the ceremony she followed suit head swimming in the wake of her relieved sigh the first apprentice to step forward was she who accompanied the master of air five shrine maidens surrounded her the rhythmic sound of taiko drumming filled the clearing. Each thundering boom was a slap against Sukune's heart. As the maidens weaved in an elaborate dance, the Shiginja drew a small conch shell and placed it against her lips. As the sound reverberated throughout the crowd, a gust of wind raked the canopy, sending down a shower of white peach blossoms. The kami had accepted the offering. It was Tadaka's turn now. With his ceremonial robes and impressive stature, he dominated the clearing. The shrine maidens shifted their dance. It was heavier now, more centered. Tadaka held out a ceramic bowl, revealing a verdant sprout within. He rotated through his prayer beads with the other hand murmuring inwardly, slowly at first, then all at once the sprout parted and bloomed with white petals. Sukune winced. As gasps arose from those around her, they swiftly grew quiet again, but even so, she could imagine the elder's thoughts about this younger, more unruly generation. Next was the student of fire. The sacred dance shifted into lively steps and energetic twists. The young man drew a candle and offered it with an outward thrust. He closed his eyes and murmured. The light of the courtyard flickered and grew with each inwardly whispered prayer. The crowd craned their necks, all eyes on the candlewick. The student stopped. His eyes opened. Nothing changed. He blinked in his confusion. Then came a loud cry as one of the courtyard tapestries burst into flame. The crowd swung toward the sudden flash of light. Fire consumed the aged fabric. A gust of wind tore at the flames, lighting the shrine's thatched roof ablaze. Sukune felt bodies push at her. Screams pierced the night as servants broke from their stations and ran. Shiba Sukazu rose, but his face did not change. His mouth moved, giving commands. The assembled samurai burst into action, evacuating the courtyard, fetching water. Some ran toward the shrine. She realized she was one of them. The fire greedily peeled off hard strips of lacquer, tossing them aside before biting deep into the ancient wood beneath. Already it had touched the ground, like spilled paint. The elemental masters stood unmoving near the burning shrine. Their illuminated faces watched the spreading flames with calm interest, as if they were reading a scroll or judging a painting. Two seemed to exchange words, but Tsukune could not hear them. A piece of smoldering tile broke against the ground beside the master of water. She did not even flinch, and Tadaka watched among them, the lone remaining student in the courtyard, indistinguishable save for his massive silhouette. Sukune ran to his side and found her breath. She seized his arm. Tadaka-sama, it's too dangerous. Come with me. No. Tadaka's uncharacteristic bark froze the blood in Sukune's veins. He spun, eyes glowing, his outline traced in orange light. Forget me. The inner shrine. The library. Genealogies. Prayers. Star maps, incantations, priceless knowledge. Irreplaceable. Someone ran past her. As she turned toward the shrine, she glimpsed Shibatetsu, his resplendent silks fluttering with his dash. As he leaped into the flaming shrine, his face was that of a man at peace, and then he was gone, swallowed up by the light. She followed. The heat pricked her flesh, and tears fell from her stinging eyes, but she pushed toward the inner sanctum, where Tetsu must have gone. All was blazing yellow light or iron-black smoke. She could not continue. Spinning around, she saw no exit. Only a few steps away, her path was curtained with flames. Should they be so fast? She remembered her brother's tenugui and pulled it from her obi, pressing it to her face and sucking air through the fabric. She crouched low beneath the smoke and looked for options. Above the fire's din, she heard a desperate voice. Help us, please! It came from the side room that had once been the administrative office. There, she found two servants and a shrine maiden. One servant was pinned beneath burning furniture, the other calling for help. The Miko just stared as flames cascaded down the walls. Sukune slammed the case of shelves with her shoulder. It rocked, but it did not budge. The cloth fell from her hands as she pushed. The shrine maiden snapped out of her trance, appeared by her side and did the same. Together they forced the case away. Sukune did not have to look at the man's leg to know it would be of no use to him. A river of smoke rolled above them. Sukune searched for an exit and found none, none but the flame-licked wall before her, a wooden frame, thick paper, and thin plaster. "'This way!' she shouted, and with all of her strength she threw herself against it. The heat seared her cheek, and the flames curled around her, but the paper wall broke, tearing a jagged hole into the shrine's garden. She fell into a bush and rolled into a face-down pile. Behind her the miko led the limping servants out of the burning portal and into the night. Sukune started to rise, but froze. She was at the feet of a man in grand ceremonial robes, His shadows splayed behind him like unfurled wings. The mon of the elemental master of fire beamed proudly on his chest. He stared into the flames. Hands pressed tight against a long string of amber beads. His face was stone serious, yet prayers tumbled out of his rising voice in a tone that was almost pleading. He twisted his palms. The string snapped with a loud pop, scattering beads onto the ground. By the time the last bead fell... The last of the shrine's flames were extinguished. The master closed his eyes and whispered, Thank you, Kami of Flame, for accepting this gift. Sukuni watched curling trails of smoke rise from a prayer bead lying inches from her face. The next moments flooded quickly by as the Phoenix Clan samurai took stock of the damage. The Honden fared better than it had seemed. Thanks to Shibu Sukazu's commands and the expertise of the Master of Fire, the flames had never reached the Inner Sanctum, nor the Holy of Holies. One-third of the outer structure was destroyed, but the remaining sections had not collapsed. Other than a broken shimenawa rope, now emptied of its hosted spirits, relatively little of importance was lost. The shrine maidens would begin floating lanterns down the babbling stream to guide the lost spirit back to the shrine while a new blessed rope was prepared. The priests gave offerings in the hope that the shrine state would not offend those remaining. In time, these scars would heal. Some Sheba stepped out of the shrine. They carried artifacts, documents, and a hearth's worth of ashes and burns. Seeing herself in the reflection pool, Sukune noted that she had fared no better. Dark smudges marked her cheeks and forehead, and her dark brown hair was now black and stiff. Her good kimono was flame-licked, stained, and sooted. She frowned and smacked the ash from her sleeves. Then she looked back through the holes she'd torn in the shrine wall. Beyond the yawning portal stretched a black layer of charcoal petals and wisps of smoke. She stared at the place where she recalled having dropped her brother's claw. Now it was like him. Only scattered ash, nothing of him left in this world. Sukune, the voice was Tetsu's. He was with the elemental masters, returning the pine box of Ujimitsu's ashes, which he had rescued from the flames. A cache of ancient scrolls peeked from a satchel slung around his immaculate kimono. He approached Sukune, eyes wide with concern. Although he smelled of smoke, he hadn't even the faintest hint of ash or burn. Are you okay? he asked. You shouldn't just leap into a burning building like that, Sakunisan. san She just stared at him, charred and sooty like a bird with singed wings. Come with us, whispered the Master of Fire as he stepped beside Tadaka. You need to hear this. Tadaka nodded following the Master of Fire into the cabal of elemental masters to ensure their words would be private. He stood beside his sensei, Isawa Rujo, the Master of Earth, and ignored the older man's disapproving eyes. Your student has accepted full responsibility, Sukesama said Rujo. The Firemaster's frown deepened. It is a shame that I must dismiss him. He showed great promise. It cannot be helped, Rujo replied. "'We must preserve face and prevent a panic. "'He is noble to have done what is necessary.' "'Even so,' murmured the master of fire. "'It has gotten worse,' breathed the decrepit master of air. "'He leaned on a jade-studded cane "'and struggled over a few breaths while the others waited. "'We cannot keep waiting for the imbalance to correct itself. "'We must become directly involved.' The Master of Water nodded. Her face was hidden behind twin waterfalls of black hair cascading from her cone-shaped hat. Even a pebble will call us ripples. The other clans will soon have questions. Better than the Phoenix provide the answers. Perhaps it would be wiser to temporarily suspend the ceremony, Rudra suggested. The destruction of the shrine is an ill omen. One by one, they turned to the Master of Void. Isawa Ujina had already drawn a circle on the ground. Rising, he reached into one of his many pockets, procuring a handful of polished stones. As the others watched, he tossed them into the circle. Then he squatted beside it and studied the stones with a deeply furrowed brow. Tadaka stepped forward. "'Father?' "'The ceremony must continue,' Ujina looked back. "'The Phoenix Clan needs a champion.' Sukune took her place in the ring of Shiba. To her right stood Tetsu, eyes reverently lowered. Even Shiba Shukazu joined the circle. They all stood together, shoulder by shoulder, with the master of void at the center. In the master's hands rested the ancestral sword of the phoenix. O Fushike, Eugenia spoke, we humbly beg you, reveal to us your chosen. Then he turned to the man directly before him and bowed. Extending his arms and offering the sword. Shiba Sakazu received it with a lowered head. He held it for a few moments while the others watched. Ujina rose. From her position on the other side of the circle, Sukune detected a relief in Sakazu's smile. Sakazu turned to the Shiba at his right and offered the blade. It was accepted. The samurai held the blade, but when nothing happened, he bowed his head and offered it again the blade passed from one Shiba to the next, slowly and reverently, beneath the ever-present eyes of the Void Master. Sukune glanced at Tetsu and caught his concerned look. He smiled reassuringly at her. She returned the expression. The mon of the heaven's wing and the personal chop of Shiba Uchimitsu on his shoulders both glowed in the moonlight, coating his flawless kimono. It will be you, Tetsu-sama, she thought, her smile broadened, as it should be. She bowed when the sword came. It was lighter than the sword of her mother, as if the sheath were empty. For fleeting moments she watched the moonlight dance along the edges of the bronze handguard and the exquisite pearls inlaid on the sword's hilt. The sheath was exquisitely carved from a single piece of wood, as if real feathers had simply petrified around the blade. She couldn't find a single flaw. The ancient sword lacked the drastic curve of a true katana and the benefits of modern smithing, yet it looked and felt as though it had just been forged. This would be the only time she would ever hold this sword. She held her breath to make the moment last just a little longer. She turned to Tetsu. The greatest honor will be passing Ofushike to you, Tetsu-sama. The sword jutted out from its sheath, exposing one inch of flawless blade. Isawa Ujina gasped. Sukune froze. From the circle arose whispers and exchanged glances. Across the ring, Shikazu smiled. Sukune looked at Tetsu. His eyes were wide saucers, like hers. It has chosen, Ujina announced. Her mouth opened, but nothing came out. He locked her gaze, smiling, clasping her arms. It is you, Shiba Sukune, champion of the phoenix. Not even the chirps of nocturnal frogs filled the silence befalling the courtyard. Sukune wanted to shatter it, to tell them it was a mistake. She couldn't be the one. It wasn't possible. But to contradict the master of void was unthinkable. So instead, she lowered her head, and her voice finally returned. As you say, she knelt before the Asawa and swore to serve. Takune was alone in the inner sanctum. Moonlight fell in thick shafts through burned holes in the ceiling. They painted her new winged kataginu in silver patches. In her obi rested the map of Shiba Castle and the surrounding province, her new home. She considered lighting incense before the statue of Shiba and the shrine to Ujimitsu, but the notion twisted her gut. This place already smelled of burnt cypress and ash. "'Were Tadaka here, she would let him light the incense "'so as not to offend the present spirits. "'But Tadaka was not here, and after tomorrow, "'when he returned to his duties, she would remain behind.' "'She looked down at Ofushuke as it rested in her hands, "'feeling its weight in the grooves of its carved sheath. "'Her clumsy hands against the flawless sword were calloused, "'rough and dirty.' not like the graceful hands of Shibatetsu, hands that had never even had the chance to touch this blade. Now they never would. In the moment after she was chosen, his eyes were dim, and he barely concealed a frown. When the blade jutted from its sheath, had it been extending itself to him? A rapid breath came, then another, Then a constant stream of them. Her chest tightened as cold hands squeezed her heart. She was drowning. She was burning. She fell upward through the yawning gap of the ceiling. Clouds covered the moon. Thoughts spilled out of her mind like an overfull cup. It's a mistake. You shouldn't be here. It's wrong. This is all wrong. A gentle weight on her shoulder. Eyes opening. The shrine was still here. She was still here. There was a floor beneath her feet, a moonlight filtering through the ceiling. Fireflies had come into the shrine. They flashed, suspended in the air, blinking into and out of existence. Outside, the wind stirred the trees. Inside, all was still. Sukuni still felt something on her shoulder, a light touch resting, but there was nothing there. She curled her fingers around Ufushike's handle, and after a moment drew the sword halfway from its sheath. In the reflection of its mirrored blade, she saw the face of a seventeen-summer's girl. And behind her, the face of Ujimitsu. Gone were his weathered wrinkles and his glorious winged kataginu. He wore simple rustic garb and the hint of a smile. His hand rested on her shoulder. Beyond him were dozens of phoenix warriors. Old, young, female and male, their clothes ranging from recent to antique, they filled the chamber, their glowing bodies filtering the light of the moon and casting no shadows. Generations of phoenix champions, all standing with her, all offering that same subtle smile. A thought came in a voice that was not hers, yet sounded so familiar. "'You will never be alone, Sukune.' She sheathed the blade and released a silent breath. I will do my best, she whispered. Above, the stone face of Sheba smiled upon her. Curved Blades by Rhys Sosby, read by Jeanie Kovar. Far to the West in Unicorn Lands. Courtiers in a rainbow of gleaming, elegant robes bowed gracefully as she passed, like flowers overburdened by dew. She smiled, her thoughts focusing not on the courtiers, but instead on the celebration around them and the riders in the field. Scimitars clashed beneath the bright sun, the finely honed edges of their dancing blades flashing prismatic light about the courtyard. Two samurai, dressed in the purple and white of the unicorn clan, fought on a verdant green swath, their display of swordsmanship drawing the attention of the surrounding courtiers, performers, and children alike. Between the waving fans and soft laughter, jugglers gamed, musicians played, and riders performed feats of athletics on the backs of magnificent prancing steeds. It was a special day, a festival day. The palace, with its gray slate and whitewashed lumber, stiff and proud, was bedecked with flowers and colorful emblems of purple and white to celebrate the occasion. A warm wind blew banners like candle flames flickering above the curled awnings. Shinjo Alten Sarnai walked down the central pathway of the castle grounds wearing close-fitting trousers suited for riding, along with a purple kikogi top folded in elaborate ripples over an underrobe of silver and gold. Whereas others wore their swords through their obi belts, Altern Sarnai's curved weapon hung in a sheath from a frog by her side, and a knife-hilt glittered above the top of her boot. "'Shinjo-sama!' a guest spoke, a crane courtier with an ever-flickering fan. "'Congratulations on your upcoming wedding!' His soft blue robes were the color of the summer sky, and his white hair hung down below his waist, braided throughout with gold and silver cords. She granted the crane a thin smile of thanks— continuing toward the edge of the riding arena. Before she could answer, a display of magic in the courtyard caught their attention. There, a unicorn Shiginja raised her hands, calling on ancient names in the manner of Mishodo. She held aloft two small ivory carvings, which were older than living memory. As she called upon the talismans in a gentle, reverent voice, they glowed in reddish tones. Dark tendrils of magic coiled about, illuminated by inner fireworks that shifted and played amid the rippling darkness. Around the edges of the field, unicorn samurai applauded in appreciation. The rest of the courtiers fell silent, eyes shifting away from the display, their fans rising like a winter breeze. "'Such magic! It is an unusual display. We of the Empire are not used to seeing the spirits treated so.' the courtier said cautiously. Of course the strict traditionalists would balk at the unicorn's unusual ways. The name-magic of Mashodo is the tradition of our people, the crane quailed, but Alter Sarnai did not pause. No matter what the phoenix Shiginja say, it is ours to master and ours to control. But your clan has been here for more than two hundred years, the crane pressed gently. Surely such dangerous traditions can be left behind. The horses rode in circles, pacing their strides in unison as the riders stood upon their backs. With a shout, the unicorn performers leapt from one steed to another, exchanging places to the delight of the audience. Their breeches caught the wind, blowing tightly against their legs as they danced a horseback. Curved scimitars sliced thrown oranges in two, leaving the fruit neatly severed by the side of the circle track. Look there, she said to the crane. Do you see the curved blades our samurai use? She raised a hand and pointed. Those blades served their parents, their grandparents, and their ancestors before them. They are as sacred as your katana, and more durable. Yes, we could learn to use a straight blade, but that is not who we are. That is not what we offer to the emperor. The kirin, our ancestors, were sent to learn about the world outside Rokugan. We were to be an unorthodox surprise against the Empire's opponents in the Shadowlands. While we were on our travels, we chose to adopt new ways, new traditions. We blended those with the culture we brought from the Empire. Old steel, newly forged. Even though we are in Rokugan, many among us still choose to fight with curved swords because our mastery of them is valuable. We carry our past forward, unifying it with the new. We remember the things we learned on our travels, and those lessons make us valuable to the emperor. The unicorn don't leave anything behind, Doji-san. Particularly anything that makes us strong, or has saved our lives as often as Mishodo. The empire will simply have to embrace pragmatism. They will have to accept our curved swords. And will you carry these traditions with you when you marry into the lion, Shinjo-sama? The crane queried. There was no reason to let his ignorance disrupt the beauty of the day, so Altern Sarnai merely replied with the sharpest of glares. Just then, a figure across the paddock strode out of the shadows. A man, his long dark hair pulled back into a tight knot of braids, smiled and bowed respectfully. Ayuchi Dayu. As he rose to meet her gaze, the world slowed around them. Altern Sarnai could not stop a shy smile from lighting her face. Nearly twenty years of companionship, and he could still make her feel like a girl being courted. "'Mother!' a samurai on the field waved, breaking the moment. Altern Sarnai waved in return. Shinjo Shono, her youngest son, rode his charger, his armor shining, its purple lacquered slats woven together with silver cord. Shono was a favorite with the courtiers, young, forthright, and eager, but obedient to his mother and faithful to his clan." You must be very proud, the crane smiled. I am proud. My three children have grown strong in imperial lands. Through a thousand lives, our clan has struggled to find our home, and we have found it here, in Rokugan. My children are a sign of the past and the future combined. Our past is Kirin, and our future as unicorn. True, Lady Shinjo Altar Sarnai. The courtier's voice stammered slightly over the foreign syllables of her name and I wish you well as you bow to that future. Nodding politely, she turned her shoulder and looked out at the field. Shinjo Shono stood first on one leg and then on the other, his horse cantering gently along below him. Riding in a circle around the enclosure, he lanced hoops with a spear. To the side, her other children, Haruko and Yasamura, cheered on their younger brother with loud cries of joy. Sarnai sama Sarnai jumped slightly. The voice was loud brash, and too close for her liking. But then again, no one had ever accused Otaku Komoko of having much decorum. Can you come with me? Altern Sanai turned to regard her friend. Komoko-san, she nodded. Something was wrong. Of course. Back across the field, Ayuchi Dayu placed a foot into his stirrup and lunged onto his steed. Altern sighed. There would be time for enjoying the day later, She turned away from the festivities and followed the younger samurai into the castle. The throne room of the unicorn clan was small for its type, rarely used and pristinely clean. It held a dais with resplendent purple pillows, a place for the champion's battle armor, and in an alcove a stand displaying a variety of cavalry weapons arrayed like flowers. These were old trophies, kept for centuries after their wielders had been defeated. Some were ancient Rokugani weapons. The rest came from foreign lands, from desert sands to towering mountains, all the places her clan had roamed during their time away from the Emerald Empire. The weapons were stories, once told with pride, but now vestiges of a wandering freedom that set her people, the children of the wind, apart. Guards in white and purple stiffened in respect as Altern Sarnay entered the room. Their eyes were downcast, hands ready on their weapons, prepared for any movement from the figure in the center of the room. There, kneeling on the floor between two guards, was a woman dressed all in funerary white. Alton walked to the dais and settles herself upon the tatami mat, her legs folding in a gentle movement. "'This is Asako Akari of the Phoenix Clan. She was found in one of the gardens, with these,' Komoko explained." drawing a small, white-handled dagger from her belt and tossing it to the floor in front of the woman, along with a length of pure white cord. The weapon landed with a clatter, steel glinting in the sunlight through the windows. "'A jigai blade?' Altun frowned. "'Jigai, a form of seppuku, was practiced by non-warriors, those of noble blood, but no military training. The rope, too, was part of the ceremony.' as were the snow-white robes worn by the person seeking death. Komoko was a thundercloud, glowering over the captive. Elton Sarnai waved her back. She is no danger, Komoko-san. Let her speak. Slowly, haltingly, Asako Okari murmured, I wish to commit chikai in protest of your wedding. She raised her chin, a faint tremble appearing on her soft lips. The woman was only slightly younger than Alton Sarnai, and lovely in a quiet, composed sort of manner. Next to Komoko, she seemed like a bird near a tiger, waiting to be eaten alive. I have the right to do so. Protest. Alton Sarnai remembered the recent news. I have heard there are protests in the Lion Lands. Even with a dowry of unicorn battle steeds, the lion are loath to see one of their respected samurai marry a Shinjo. I expect trouble from them. I did not expect it from the phoenix. We, of the Empire, are not used to seeing the spirits treated so. The phoenix were even more opposed to the Unicorn Clan's magic. Had the phoenix allowed this Jigai because they wanted to humiliate the unicorn? It was possible. The woman shivered. I wish only to give my life as the ancestors would will it, sacrificing for that which was taken from me. Taken from you? Alton Sarnai snapped. I am the one abdicating my position as champion to join this union. I am the one leaving behind my lands, my family, my... Ayuchi Dayu smiling, his long, dark braids spilling delicately over his shoulder. I am the one placing everything behind so that there may be peace. But you say we have taken something from you? Bowing her head, the Asako responded. You have great champion, though you do not know it. "'Now that was curious.' Pressing the issue, Altern Sarnai asked, "'Tell me your tale.' "'I was once Ikoma Akari, married to the Lord Ikoma Anakazu, daimyo of the Ikoma family. For many years we had been one household. We have a daughter. But now, for his clan and his duty, he has been ordered to put us aside.' The Asako's voice gained strength in the telling. "'You may believe that I dislike you, my lady. I do not.' It is not your foreign ways or your strange magic that send me to death this day. It is love. I cannot live without him. Because he has divorced me, I will die in protest. This woman was brazen, speaking her mind to a champion. What do I care? Your woes are not mine. Yet I would not see a life wasted. Can you not continue as you are without the title? Ours is a political union, not a love match. No, Ikari shook her head. Her eyes dimmed, and she bowed low to the floor, pressing her head and her hands against the shining floorboards. Anakazu-sama is a man of great duty and loyalty; he will be faithful to his wife, any wife. And does he love you? Love was not part of the samurai code—only duty. Still, the woman's tale surprised her. How had she not have been told of this? He does. A fragile stillness came upon the room. Was this some devious scorpion's trick? If the woman committed jikai, especially here on Unicorn Lands, Alton would be dishonored. The wedding would be considered unlucky in the eyes of the fortunes. Now that I know this, I must act. You realize that, of course. This is my fate, the Asako murmured regretfully. It is the only blow I can strike, for myself, for my daughter. It is to my great shame that I was discovered before I could complete my task. I told you this wedding was ill-favored, Komoko glowered. Three years we have worked toward a peace with the lion, only to have them demand an outcome that puts her aside. What has she done wrong? Nothing! Elton Sarnai shifted in her seat. The woman's choice of action had been brave, though ill-considered. Death would not reunite her with her husband. Komoko-san, a wedding with Ikoma Anakazu— is the only way to bring peace with the Lion Clan. If the Lion have chosen to end Anakazu's marriage, then that is their champion's choice. It was disturbing to think about, but necessary. Divorces weren't unheard of, though they inevitably dishonored one party or the other. Even if it means her death? According to the Rokugani, her death means nothing. It means everything. She has committed no crime, performed no dishonor. Yet we rob a wife of her husband her child of a mother? Were we not taught that family is to be honored, that life is sacred? Here in Rokugan, in Rokugan they cling to outdated customs, and they destroy lives. Yutaku shook her head, long hair shimmering in the sunlight. This woman is willing to die for her family. Are you not willing to live for yours? Ayuchi dayu enough! At the very sound of the name, Elton Sanai felt heat rise in her cheeks. Her voice was as loud as a clarion call, echoing from the corners of the room. Altern took a moment to compose herself, closing her eyes and rubbing her forehead with one hand. "'Enough,' she said more gently, meeting Kimoko's eyes. Dayusama is the father of my heirs and my partner. In loyalty he supports this union. I have not put him aside.' "'He supports you, Altern I, not the wedding,' Kimoko said in measured tones." Alton Sarnai and Dayu's relationship was no one's business but their own. It was partly why they had never formally married. That, and the complications of marriage between the clan champion and a family daimyo. Still, was she being unfaithful to Dayu? Trying to ignore her discomfort, she gazed at the tableau before her with a measuring eye. Duty, love, they cannot always exist together. We must choose, and for my clan's sake— I must choose peace. The contract is signed. We must keep our end of the deal. She sighed at the end, adding, What else can we do, Komoko? We have been through this argument before. It is not peace if you are a prisoner. When you agreed, you did not know he would set aside his wife like a coward. And you did not know— A silence fell over the room, broken only by Akari's soft tears. Faltering, Komoko spoke again. These lion— For centuries the Kirin wandered, facing dangers alone. Our clan fought and bled, struggled and eventually returned home, only to be treated like outsiders. Our sacrifice has not been recognized. Our strength has not been respected. The lions still refuse to acknowledge our ancestral lands. They try to claim them at every opportunity. They kill our parents, our siblings, over petty concerns of pride. On our own, far from home, the Karin clan came to respect the sanctity of life. Seppuku was all but unheard of, and punishments, while cruel, were rarely to the death. We needed every sword we could muster simply to survive. Our clan has returned and rediscovered our homeland. As the unicorn, we protect Rokugan, but to remain here, we are asked to forget what we have learned and become like all the others. That is not who we are. We must not set aside the lessons of the wandering Kirin. Not for the lion, not for anyone. Great champion, Asako Akari looked up from the floor hesitantly. It is true. I do not understand your ways. I do not know why I am still alive to speak with you instead of having been killed for by boldness. I cannot live without Anakazu-sama. She breathed deeply. There is no place for me in this world without my family. Therefore... I beg you, either kill me, or do not marry Anakazu-sama. Bushido should have prevented the phoenix from asking such a thing. Akari dishonored herself with the words, disobeying her family and betraying her honor. The woman's statement cost her much to say aloud, but her boldness did not change the facts. You have no right to ask that of me. Perhaps she does not, Komoko slowly lowered herself to her knees. But I do— the Unicorn Clan respects Bushido's tenets, but the long years of travel taught us that practicality means survival. You are bound by your word, by your sense of honor, but you are ignoring what is right." Komoko spoke passionately, her dark eyes flashing. "'Mighty champion! If I were to ask my daimyo to reconsider her plans of marriage, would she listen to me?' "'Komoko-san,' altun Sane shook her head. The lion and the unicorn are already agreed. If I do not marry him, the clan will suffer a great loss of honor. That failure may well lead to war. Her arms fell to her sides, the purple sleeves of her formal kikogi brushing the first knuckle of her hand. The lion offered this marriage as a means of finding peace. We give them a dowry of horses. They remove their claim from our southernmost lands. The lion tricked us. You did not know the cost. "'If you marry him, you leave the clan, and we lose a great leader. "'We agreed to this marriage before we knew you would become his trophy, "'before we knew that, by a coma custom, "'the wife takes the husband's name and joins his lands. "'We did not ask for him to join your house, "'because we did not know that we needed to. "'It is no loss of face to claim the deal is changed, "'and if that saves this woman's life, then all the better.' "'Altern paused.' Komoko's arguments were sharp and felt raw on account of her temper, but the woman was not wrong. Still, she was not thinking of duty, only of practicality. What of the possibility of a war with the lion? Should she not accept the tradition of Rokugan and do her duty? Leave behind the traditions of her people in order to ease the tensions with another clan? To avoid war, she was considering giving up her future. The unicorn don't leave anything behind. Curved Swords. It was a matter of using curved swords, finding a way to incorporate unicorn practicality into the traditions of the Empire. Sometimes things needed to be changed in order to become stronger. Hadn't that been the Kirin's purpose? To find strength outside the Empire and bring it home to empower Rokugan? This wedding was based on old traditions, traditions the unicorn had not known to contradict. Now they were trapped, and the clan would suffer. "'The lion will not see it that way,' she said at last. "'They will only see that tradition has not been followed. "'Then we are as helpless and ill-fated as she. "'Marry him, and your spirit will die. "'Do not, and your honor may die instead. "'Either way, there is blood on your blade. "'This woman's Tanto asked us, "'Which shall we follow, spirit or duty?' said Komoko. "'Our ancestors left the empire seeking the answer to that question.' We returned with the only answer that makes sense. Freedom. The freedom to choose between the two. Do you think I am giving up that freedom? You would not choose this for yourself. You say the clan needs this. We do not need this. Our horses are swift and our swords are true. We could defeat the lion. The words echoed in the chamber for a long, crisp moment, tension darkening the sunlit day. Komoko flushed, clearly embarrassed by her outburst. I am sorry, my champion. I should not have... Passion was clear on Komoko's face. Too much passion. But she was right, and and I couldn't argue any further. The feeling was like a stone sinking into her belly. If she made this choice, she opened the unicorn up to a thousand political games. The image of the needling crane courtier rose in her mind, and and I frowned. You are right. It is a choice. But it is not a choice between spirit and honor. It is a choice between the future and the past. Rokugan must be brought into the future by whatever means necessary. Elton Sarnai closed her eyes. The wedding was political, meant to bring peace between the clans. Yet it could not come at the cost of all that the Kirin, the unicorn clan, had learned and become. And the lion would have to learn to respect the unicorn's ancestral lands once and for all. "'You are right,' Elton Sarnai repeated, fingering the hilt of the scimitar at her waist.' The tradition of Rokugan is not the law of Rokugan. I refuse to have my place taken from me over something not in the terms of our arrangement. I agree to marriage. I did not agree to give up my name and my standing. We must draw attention to the distinction. Ringing a bell, she summoned a messenger into the room. He paused upon seeing the woman in white on her knees before the champion, but was savvy enough to say nothing and seemed utterly undisturbed. Altun I said, Draft a letter to the Akoma ambassador and the Lion Clan. Tell them that I no longer approve the Lion offer of marriage. I withdraw my hand, and no dowry will be paid. The messenger bowed and scurried away. Alton Sarnai rose, prompting the soldiers in the room to bow in unison. Komoko leaned forward as well, head gracefully dipping in respect. Yasako bowed lowest of all, face pressed to the floorboards at Alton Sarnai's feet. Ikoma Akari-san, rise. Your life is spared. Leave these lands forever. Return to your husband and give your renewed marriage my blessing. You are free to go. Komoko blinked, her eyes narrowing. Nevertheless, she stepped aside, allowing the Asako to climb gracefully to her feet. Akari, breathless with joy, wasted no time with her dismissal, gathering herself and half-fleeing while tears still stained her cheeks. Kumoko-san, carry word personally to the emperor. This steed will not be broken to rein and saddle, nor will I compromise my clan in the name of peace. If the lion truly want war, then they will come for it, and would have marriage or no marriage. But if they do, they will find that free horses are worth ten times a chained mountain cat. Only if the emperor himself demands it will I change my mind. Let him command me, or let me remain as I am, in his service alone. Komoko bowed low, her long tail of hair sweeping over her shoulders with the motion. So shall it be, my champion. Altern Sarnai rose to walk toward the window, looking down at the riders below. She smiled to see them racing upon green grasses, as though they hadn't a care in the world, only joy. As she watched, hoofs tore the sod, and manes and tails blew in fierce winds, winds that came from mountains and deserts and lands far away. "'Let the past stay the past,' she said. "'I will take the shame they offer. Despite their adherence to old ways and constraining traditions, we will bring the Empire forward, into the realm of the possible. We will teach its people our strength, and we will show them our duty.' As a light, she walked past Kimoko and the guards, toward the fields and the horses beyond. We will teach them how to fight with curved blades. The World, a Stage, by D. G. Laderoot, read by Jeannie Calvar. <music> Meanwhile, in the Imperial Capital... Bayushi Shouju, champion of the Scorpion Clan, leapt over the incoming blow, dodging right and striking left as he did. He was as water, liquid movement, placing himself where his opponent's strikes were not. His opponent was as fire, speed and aggression, lashing out with a barrage of attacks that would have quickly overwhelmed a lesser adversary. Another slash. He dodged again. This time he kicked outward, his foot slamming into his opponent's shoulder. The woman recovered quickly, but not quickly enough. Shoju's weapon struck through the minuscule gap opened in his opponent's chain of attacks, finding the woman's stomach and driving her back with a grunt. She immediately knelt and dropped her weapon. Shoju had landed a harder hit than he had intended, and he lost a moment recovering. Frowning behind his mask, he turned to the bushi he'd defeated. Well fought, Yunako-san. If you hadn't swung wide on that next-to-last strike, it would be me, not you, now kneeling on the dojo floor. Bayushi Yunaku bowed. You honor me, Bayushi Yue. Shoju hefted the bokken, the wooden practice sword, in his right hand. The potency of the shishoro potions that gave strength and flexibility to his right arm, withered since birth, was beginning to fade. He turned toward the rack of practice weapons, meaning to end the sparring bout, but stopped. A thought had occurred to him the previous night, and now was the perfect time to pursue it. He turned back. "'Yunaka-san,' he said, "'retrieve your katana.' "'Hi, baiushi Ue. Shouju waited as the other baiushi walked across the open expanse of the dojo practice hall, her feet whispering through the cushion of sand covering the floor. Placing the boken down, she drew her katana with a whisper of steel— carefully replaced its sheath beside her wakasashi, the other blade of her daisho, and then returned to face her champion. Now, Shoju said, I want you to kill me. Yunaku bowed. As you wish, Bayushi Ue. Straightening, she exploded into movement, slashing at Shoju with a cut that would have decapitated him had it connected. It didn't. But missed by barely a finger's length as Shoju leapt aside. Twisting mid leap, he struck back with his bokan. Once more he was water. Once more Yunako was fire. This time, however, her strikes were edged with razor steel and the full intent, as Shoju had commanded, to kill. A vicious cut whistled past Shoju's gut, nearly disemboweling him. Behind his mask, he smiled and jabbed the bokan at Yunako hard. The other bayushi sidestepped. And struck back like a literal scorpion with an overhand swing that blurred at Shoju's neck. He twisted and kicked at Yonako's leg, knocking her off balance enough to let him duck his head under the attack. Grinning now, he followed up with a backhand blow that struck Yonako's arm. As quick as thought, she changed direction, moving with the strike to dissipate its energy. At the same time, she whipped her katana in a wide arc to slash across Shoju's back. He laughed. Still water. Shoju threw himself forward, driving his whole weight against Yanako in a way that was earth, solid and inevitable. He was now also fire, as fast as a leaping tongue of flame, air aware of every movement of arm and hand, leg and foot, every shift in weight, every tension and relaxation of muscle, and void in the union of it all into a single perfect moment, fully mindful and entirely mindless. His leap forward and sudden impact against his opponent caused a fractional hesitation in her swing, time enough for him to slam the bokken against Yanako's sword hand, drive his own left hand forward, and snatch the katana from her grasp. He deflected its momentum down, and then around and up in front of his own body, letting his weight keep shoving her back and down until he landed on top of her, one knee driving up against her stomach, pinning her while the katana finished its new arc and came to rest against her neck. Blood wept from the touch of steel on flesh, as crimson bright as the subaki flower, the red camellia that bloomed in the imperial gardens. Shoju smiled again behind his mask, at the appropriateness of it. For her part, Yanako simply waited, her face calm, almost serene, her eyes focused on something above and beyond her champion. A long moment passed. Finally, her eyes moved to meet Shouju's. "'My honor,' she said, "'and my life for the scorpion.'" Shoju kept his gaze locked on Yunako's. Such direct eye contact was a breach of etiquette in court. But this wasn't court. He found no fear in her eyes, no hesitation or regret. Shoju nodded once and tensed his arm holding the katana then leapt and spun into a crouch, Yunako's blade ready against whoever had quietly entered the dojo, and now stood nearby. My apologies, Lord Shoju, Bayushi Kachiko said, a smile playing around her lips. Am I interrupting? Shoju lowered the blade and motioned for Yunako to stand. Reversing the katana he offered it back to her, hilt first. I believe this is yours, Yunako san. Yunako bowed deeply, acknowledging both her clan champion and now the imperial advisor. Blood dripped from her wounded neck. It is I who must apologize, Bayushiue, for my poor performance here today. I fear I was an unworthy opponent for you. On the contrary, you were most worthy, yunako san I would spar with you again. Tend to your wound, then be here at dawn. Hi, Bayushiue. Yanako accepted her katana from Shoju, moved to retrieve the rest of her Daisho, bowed again, and retired from the dojo. Kachiko turned her hinted smile back at Shoju. Do you intend to make that woman your concubine? Shoju retrieved the bokken and returned it to its rack. And if I did? There are better choices. There is a Shishuro who would be a good candidate, and also a Yogo I could suggest. Mind you, best not to actually fall in love with that one, given her family's curse. Shoju scooped sand from the dojo floor and scrubbed the sweat from his hands. His withered right arm twinged again, reminding him he needed another dose of the Shoshuro potions. "'What need do I have for a concubine?' he said, stepping close to Kachiko. "'When my wife is the most desirable woman in Rokugan.' "'Be careful, Lord Shoju, if your wife hears you saying such things.' She may begin to believe them. Shoju allowed his smile to touch his eyes. Believing what is true is only sensible. Such irony coming from the master of secrets and lies. I do sometimes speak the truth. The light in Kachiko's eyes became more intense. And they are inevitably truths that please me. Shoju allowed the moment between them to linger, then stepped back. I assume you did not merely come here to watch me spar. Allow me to bathe, then we will speak further. Let us meet by the uppermost koi pond at the ending of the hour of the monkey. Kachiko brushed a finger along Shoju's palm as she withdrew her hand. I look forward to it, my husband. Shoju watched as the koi swam about in the pond in their mindless way orange-gold, creamy-white, and occasionally black. Their movements truly were water, a ceaseless, languid flow. Some among the phoenix believed that studying the actions of Koi could reveal insights about the future. Bending down, he placed a finger into the water, blocking the way of a particular fish. It bumped into his finger, recoiled, and swam another way. Another fish changed its course as a result and another because of that one, and so on, until the meandering paths of most of the koi had been affected. The phoenix may be right, Shoju thought. But merely discerning the future wasn't enough. Changing it, shaping it, as he had just changed the actions of the koi. That was what mattered. Your son, Kachiko said from behind him, would be charmed to see you playing with the fish. Shoju kept watching the koi. Dairu is more than old enough to recognize what is play and what is not. So you are tending to the fish, then? We have servants for such things. As they swam about, Shoju noticed the koi were now avoiding his finger, incorporating its presence into their behavior. He withdrew it and stood. There is value sometimes, he said, in such simple things as tending to fish, particularly when that simplicity is deceptive. Kachiko moved beside him. "'Simplicity is almost always deceptive.' Shoju nodded. A short distance away, a peasant gardener trimmed withered blossoms from a purple sprawl of violets. Further away, in another direction, a pair of servants carried lumber toward a tea-house, undergoing repairs. Tucked discreetly among a stand of cherry trees. There were other servants, Shoju knew." Elsewhere among the foliage around them, engaged in all of the various labors needed to keep the gardens a place of tailored beauty. Simple people doing simple things. And all of it a lie. They were servants, yes, but they were also agents of the scorpion. Through their presence and movements, they would ensure that no one would be able to approach him and Kachiko closely enough to overhear what they might say, at least not without them knowing about it. The gardener would turn his attention to a nearby hibiscus, the laborers working on the tea house would move a particular piece of lumber, and Shoju would know someone was approaching long before they got close enough to be a concern. Small and simple things done by apparently small and simple people, but actually full of meaning, deceptive simplicity, all of it in service to the scorpion. Something troubles you, my husband, Kachiko said. Many things trouble me. Is that why you were seriously considering killing that samurai in the dojo? Shoju glanced at Kachiko, then began to walk, following a winding path away from the koi pond. Kachiko fell smoothly into step alongside him. She needed to see that my intent to kill her was true, he said, so that I, in turn, could see her reaction to it. You were testing her. Shoju watched as the servants who weren't began to move about the gardens, repositioning themselves to accommodate his and Kachiko's movements. Bayushi Yunako was suggested to me as a candidate for command of the Bayushi Elite Guard. Such a position demands loyalty that is absolute, and a devotion to duty that is unwavering. I therefore told her to kill me, and she immediately brought all of her skills to bear, seeking to do just that. And when I had defeated her, she was just as ready to die by my hand, without question, or even understanding why. A dead woman would make a poor commander, no matter how loyal or devoted. Then it was a good thing, Shoji said, that you showed up when you did. Kachiko smiled. For a while, they just walked among trees in bloom, taking in the colors and mingled scents of myriad flowers. Eventually, they reached a small arched bridge over a placid creek one of several that meandered through the gardens of the Imperial Palace, Shouju stopped at the peak of the arch and leaned on the railing, looking along the watercourse to where it vanished beneath a spill of weeping willow fronds. Kachiko placed her hand on the railing, just touching his. "'And still my words stand unanswered,' she said. "'Something troubles you. Something beyond merely selecting trusted commanders for our clan's military forces.' Shoju watched a solitary rose petal drift along the creek. "'I am mindful of a kabuki play I recently saw,' he said. "'The attention was meant to be on the actors, of course, "'who all played their roles with appropriate skill. "'My own interest, however. kept returning to the kuroko, the stagehands, "'all dressed in black, "'who moved props about and rearranged the stage and scenery "'as the play progressed.' They dressed in black because they were meant to be invisible and ignored. He looked at Kachiko. It struck me, though, that the Kuroko are really the most important of the players on the stage. Their placement of the scenery and props determines the movements of those actors. Change a single element even slightly, and a performer can be made to step into shadow, or stoop slightly, or come somewhat too close to the edge of the stage. This will change how the actor delivers their performance and, with it, the delivery of the play itself. Kachiko watched her husband, but said nothing and waited for him to go on. Shoju looked back at the drifting pedal. If the Empire is the play, and the clan's its players, then ours is at the center of the stage, where the attention is most focused. He turned back to Kachiko. But is that where the scorpion belong? Are we not meant to be the Kuroko, dressed in black and largely ignored, arranging and shaping the events of the empire while all eyes are fixed elsewhere? We have labored mightily to gain the power we now hold, Kachiko said. Years of careful planning, of procuring key appointments and influential marriages, of removing those who would stand in our way, all of it has accumulated in what we now have. The scorpion have earned the center of the imperial stage, have we not? I don't dispute that, Shoji said. We have indeed earned what we have. That doesn't mean it's what we should have. I believe I hear echoes in your voice, husband. Echoes of the daimyo of the Soshi and Yogo families. Shoshi Shiori and Yogo Junzo have both conveyed their thoughts to me, yes both, in their own respective ways, believe that we have accrued power at the expense of what our true role in the Empire should be. And you agree with them? Shoju looked for the rose petal, but it was gone, vanished beneath the willow fronds. I do not immediately disagree with them. He smiled at Kachiko. However, I wouldn't assume a position either way without hearing what my most trusted adviser has to say about the matter. It sounds... Like you're suggesting we surrender power to the other clans, allowing them to make gains in the imperial court. And this would be to enable us to work from the margins, from a weakened position? Kachiko raised an eyebrow. It is an interesting approach to furthering our clan's agenda. My distant predecessor, Bayushi Ogwe, did this very thing, did he not? The scorpion were then ascendant in the empire in almost every way. By bragging about how easy it would be to defeat the unicorn, when every other clan had failed, and then losing to them in a truly humiliating fashion, he made our clan appear overconfident and weak. The other clans dismissed us and fell back to fighting among themselves, the perfect conditions for doing the thing that our clan does best. The difference, Kachiko said, is that the Rokugan of Okue's time— was relatively prosperous and stable. The clans found it easy to view the scorpion as a common enemy. Kachiko looked toward a stand of maples further along the path they'd been walking. Her eyes were distant, though, gazing at things beyond the trees. By comparison, the empire today is in turmoil. The crane hover on the brink of famine, a famine that could spread if harvest so much as falter in another part of the empire. The dragon grapple with ever fewer births among their people, even while this perfect land sect rises among them, preaching heresy and sedition. The crab fight desperately to hold the carpenter wall against the darkness. The phoenix can find communion with the elemental kami ever more difficult. I am well aware of the issues facing the Empire, Shouju said. It is because of them, in fact, that the clans turn envious eyes toward us. Take Doji Hotaru. She may be young and inexperienced in her role as the champion of the crane, but she is Doji Satsume's daughter. She will seek power in the courts to offset her clan's weaknesses elsewhere, particularly in the wake of the Emerald Champion's death. She will likely find eager allies to that end in the phoenix and the unicorn. The phoenix are of little consequence, Kachiko said, shrugging lightly, and there will be no alliance permitted between the crane and the unicorn. Moreover, Her clan's loss of the Emerald Championship can be our gain. Your brother, Haramoro, would be an excellent candidate, I think. Perhaps. But Kikita Yoshi is still the Imperial Chancellor. He will likely be most accommodating when Hotaru wishes to advance her clan's agenda in the courts. You can rest assured that you needn't worry about Hotaru. Or, by extension, the crane, my husband. Shouju looked down into the water. "'taking note of the certainty in Kachiko's tone. "'After a brief pause to allow her to see that he had noted it, he continued, "'Then there is the matter of the crab. "'Hida Kasada begins to mutter darkly about us "'over the matter of the emperor's apparent lack of interest "'in the mounting threat to the wall. "'At the very least, he wonders why we don't use our influence "'to convince the emperor that securing the wall "'is the empire's most pressing concern.' It is unlike Kasada to so openly admit weakness. I have offered him aid from our clan, troops, and material, but he demands an unacceptable degree of control over them. That is just stubborn crab pride. Indeed, but it doesn't change the fact they are another clan beginning to eye our power and influence with growing resentment. Kachiko said nothing for a while. Shoju felt her weighing something in the silence as though deciding whether she should speak, and if so, what words to use. Curious, he waited, listening to the soft gurgle of the stream under the bridge. "'Perhaps,' Kachiko finally said. "'There is an alternative way of seeing this play.' Shoju looked at her. "'Perhaps,' she went on, instead of surrendering power and moving into the shadows like your Kuroko. "'We should do the opposite.' Just as I suggested we consider seeing Aramoro made Emerald Champion, perhaps we should be gathering and consolidating even more power for our clan. That would be a brazen strategy. Possibly. But again, this is not Ogwe's empire. In dire times, Rokugan needs strength and leadership. Dissipating our gains and allowing them to accrue to others simply risks all of the clans being weak at the very time when at least one of them must be strung. Bayushi no Kami told the first emperor we would be his villain, Shoju said, not the enforcers of his will. True. But many Hante emperors have come and gone in the meantime. None have enjoyed the favor of heaven as clearly as the first. This one, the 38th, Shoju held up a hand, your words are becoming dangerous, my wife, if you are suggesting that the celestial heavens have withdrawn their favor from this, Hante. I presume to suggest no such thing, Kachiko said. I merely observe that crisis and strife are rising across the empire. Your emperor needs to be especially strong in such a time. He needs the strength that you have, Bayushi you of the scorpion. Shoju clasped his hands behind his back. "'his good left holding his withered right. "'An absurd thought occurs to me,' he said. "'Perhaps it is only because I am fatigued after my exertions in the dojo. "'However, one could take what you just said "'to mean that I should sit upon the chrysanthemum throne.' "'He smiled. "'As I said, though, it is absurd to think "'that you could even be so much as hinting at such a thing, isn't it?' "'Hachiko laughed. "'Oh, my husband!' Do you really believe I could even imagine such a thing, that I would see anyone but a hante upon the throne of Rokugan? (laughs) She laughed again. When Bayushi Nokami said he would be hante Nokami's villain, I don't believe he intended quite that degree of villainy. As you said, it is an entirely absurd thought. Perhaps, Shoju said, his smile vanishing, you should choose your "'Words with more care, than my wife.' Looking around, he saw the gardener, now trimming grass beneath a hibiscus, the tea-house laborers now shifting another piece of lumber. These gardens, like the imperial court itself, effectively belonged to the scorpion. It was almost certain no one would ever be able to overhear them. Almost. Kachiko bowed an apology. "'You are right, of course, my husband.' I will endeavor not to be so careless in the future. Shoju nodded and began walking again, across the bridge and toward the stand of maples. Kachiko once more fell into step beside him, and they resumed their discussion, talking about the many troubles facing the Empire, and the challenges and opportunities they presented to the Scorpion Clan.